And welcome back for part two of this conversation with Philip Tolele in the service of others, who dares wins. And so the all, so you're in, you've transitioned, or not transitioned, but you've gone through cycle and you're into the squadron and you're getting some experience and stuff there and going on these, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of training, obviously, by the sounds of things happening. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. How long, because you got out in 97, eh? You left the unit, That's right, yeah. SASR yeah. 97. How long were you in the unit, and what sort of was the was the operational tempo picking up, or was it high, or was it quiet at that time? No, no. I, I served when SAS stood for stay at Swanbourne. You know, yeah, there, gotcha. there wasn't much. Okay, there yeah, was, there quite, was the yeah, occasional yeah. Uh, UN gig here or there. Yeah, um, and that, that was about it. A lot of the guys joke with me um, afterwards, and they said, "Phil, you're at the airport when your ship came in." <laughs> you know, mm. everything cracked off just late 97 yeah uh, but yeah but you know what um one door closes another door opens uh i got exposure yeah. to a whole range of commercial opportunities as a result of that's that that's right uh, which, yeah. which held me in pretty good stead the um Absolutely. there's always a sense of oh geez i wish i got a run you know yeah um but but i can't say that there is a sense of pride knowing that i was part of a group of guys and i'm in some pretty good company that yeah. kept the torch alive you know carried it for our, our part of the journey and then handed it to the next push and we, we handed over that torch in good shape and they good took shape, it to the yeah. next level as well. So there's a great sense of pride in that. Not everyone gets Absolutely. a run. And even Absolutely. those who deploy, not everyone gets on a patrol where things get exciting. You know, yeah, so. 100%, 100%. I'm so glad you've yeah. said that as well because I think that's important for uh, guys that are coming through and guys that have been to, to hear that because the foundations that people like yourselves that have laid for other people to come through is critically important and vital to the success, the ongoing success of what the unit and those individuals within it have been able to continue to have and build upon. So, um, yeah, there, there can be people that would feel like, oh, it would have been great to get a run. And I think that's just the natural, I guess, part that's within you as, as the experience that you have, the desire to serve in that capacity in addition to other things. But as you've mentioned, which we're going to delve into, you've gone on to have a whole bunch of great commercial opportunities and other experiences and where you've been able to draw upon and use those experiences from yeah. that background and, and many other facets to bring to yeah. bear into these environments that have created a whole bunch of success, which I want to dive into if that's all right with you, yeah, Phil. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So that you've 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 gotten out in '97. First, can I ask what what was the decision to to leave in '97? Was it just had enough, or was it an, an opportunity uh, that you saw? Or no, it was a number of things. Um, so uh, divorced, divorced, mm. uh, got divorced just as we were doing the CT build up. Right. Uh, okay. Which was good. Because as an MOE guy, when it came to manual methods of entry, <laughs> that's very therapeutic stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. I'm going through the wall this time, you know, and just get it yeah, out of the yeah. system. So there was that. Um, mm. We um, they just introduced this thing with um, with some changeovers in superannuation. Was it, right. I actually yeah, had yeah. an opportunity that if I got out and I left the country, I could get my employer's contributions as well. Which was about a hundred grand at that stage. Which, which, yeah, right. At that point of time, in that economy, in that point of my life, that was a lot of money. Um, yeah. Now it's yeah. not even a deposit on a house, yeah. you know. But um, that, that was a that was a big motivator, and 
I had about three close calls. Um, uh, one in particular that I saw coming, you know, where, um, where we're doing, you know, halfway um, mid, mid CT cycle, you do some crossover yep. training and the, uh, the MOE guys have a go at crashing the cars and the mm-hmm. drivers have a go at bashing down the doors. Um, yeah. It's all very interesting stuff, but it gives you a, a greater depth of experience um, yeah. to carry through. And if guys get promoted into a 2IC role or something before the next cycle, then at least they've they've had a go at it and they've got an understanding yeah. of what their troops are doing. There's a really good phase. But during that, we've done a plan for a uh, uh, multiple entries, multiple teams, multiple entry night time. Uh, you remember that the bank had been doing yeah. We're rolling in, <laughs> rolling in hot on there, and uh, we were coming in through the front. Uh, another, oh, sorry, yeah, we were coming in through the front. Another team was coming in through the back. Where the doors were and the way they were offset, but you know, I, and it was only because I actually know that building and it probably crashed and bashed into those doors so many times. Yeah, there's one. It's like a delivery door. It's flush, and if you're down this end of the building, counting from that side, door one, two, three, four, two. it's pretty easy to get the count wrong. And we'd have yep. an opposed blow, you know. And you you certainly don't want to be inside a room when the frame charge across from you goes yeah. off on that on a solid court door. Um, you're going to look like a porcupine. So mm-hmm. anyway, running through, doing the briefing, I've mentioned, hey, look, there's a chance there for an opposed blow because it would be easy to skip that door when you're trying to count. You haven't started yep. from that end coming down. You've started from this end going up. Now the MOE yeah. guys got to look down there and count off those doors. I said it'd be pretty easy to miss, um, and I got told, "Shut up! What do you know? You haven't even been here since Mornos, let alone breakfast. Uh, you know, so just get on." Uh, yeah. and, and and that was basically because someone didn't like his plan being shot down. You know, yeah, yeah, because he was getting assessed too on his uh, his direct action planning, so uh, he didn't like any criticism. So anyway, we've gone out to roll on it, and uh, in we go. Um, our charge has gone off. We've gained entry. They're the old dinosaur drills in those days, I know the, 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 the new guys laugh at this, but we'd box the doorway, uh, clear the room, and then move. Yep. It wasn't all moving like it is now. Yep. Um, we're in there, box the doorway, clear, and then over the radio here, stop, 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 safety catches on, move outside. Yeah. Hmm, something's going wrong. Safety on, move outside. Exactly what I was concerned well, yeah, might no. happen happened, yeah. and not only was that frame uh, yeah. charge on the door opposite us, but um, he'd had a misfire, and he was in the process uh, yeah. of of rearming, uh, rearming, yeah, know, and 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 firing, a, having a second crack at firing it when the safety officer must have been. Hopefully, I sowed, sowed those seeds in his mind, counted the doors, yeah. and realised shit, you're on the wrong door, and stopped him. Um, uh, and I looked at that and I thought. Man, I even saw that one coming. Yeah. And I coined the phrase, uh, it's better to have uh, blood on your hands than egg on your face. You know, that was was the attitude. Don't criticise my plan. Uh, Just go and get hurt. Yeah. So I got to the point where marriage has gone belly up. I met a girl that I really like. Uh, I want to play happy families again. I got this opportunity uh, to cash in and move on. Yeah. I'm going to tap out. So I gotcha. it was gotcha. pretty easy. I did a one-week discharge. Wow, one week. One week, yeah. I went, went in to see the um, the uh, chief clerk, 
I said, thanks, yeah. sir. I'm interested in getting out of here. This, this, this. And he goes, Phil, I, I can't discharge you uh, based on that. He goes, you just, you know, you're capitalising and taking advantage of the system. He goes, now if you had a, um, if you had a compassionate reason, compassionate story, yeah. go, go yeah. outside, think about it, come back in, we'll do this again. So I walked in and said, sir, I'm thinking about getting a discharge. He goes, what, why is that? I said, my mum's sick in New Zealand. He goes, oh, I can help you with that. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> Crunched all the paperwork, you know, sign this, fax it back, we'll operate on this, you send me the hard copy later. He just shuffled all that paperwork around. Uh, one week, I was gone. And wow. And then I had a um, 21-year-old kid at uh, Lewin for discharge look at me, and yep. she said, thank you for your service, and I, I was angry. You know, it was so disingenuous. Uh, yeah, you right. Don't me. You don't know what I've sacrificed. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how many mates I buried during my time. Yep. You're just a kid mm. making a comment that it was cheap. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't happy with it. Yeah, right. I bet. Did you uh, did you say anything to the uh, no. young twenty one year old? No, just took the, took the kept plate that plate inside and left. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man, a lot of stuff, a lot of working parts in there. That's that's a lot of information to just carry on talk about just in and of itself. But I'm really keen to talk about Phil with you in terms of that transition out. What was that? So once you're out, once you got out. What was what was the feeling? What was going on in your mind? What was your plan in terms of what you were going to do next? Did you have a clear plan of what you were going to do next? No, no. I was just, I wanted to get out. So I went on a yeah. holiday to New Zealand, cashed in the yep. money, <laughs> came back home to Australia, <laughs> yep. cashed up. Um, and I wanted to do um, anything that wasn't a tough guy job. I wanted to wow. run, you know. Yeah. I didn't want to have yeah. to run around taking care of other people and, and throwing it out there on the line. I just I wanted something easy. So yeah. I was good with computers. Um, first job I picked up was with uh, Harvey Normans, selling oh, computers. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, I, had, I had a long history with computers from Vic-20, Commodore 64, all the way <laughs> through, you know. Um, and so I, I knew my way around those things and uh, digital photography. I've done a lot of that AV stuff um, and the photographic courses. So... I held myself in pretty good stead there. And I, I, actually, Harvey Normans is pretty cool. They do some really clever training. It's not just uh, product training on this is the, the latest, you know, digital camera or whatever. They actually had some sales training uh, stuff that they ran for us. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mate, it was transformational. There's one particular course they ran, um, and there was a guy taught us about all of these their sales techniques, but what, what they're doing is they're basically – it's all about teasing out the objection. If someone's not buying something off you, they have an objection. It costs too much. I don't, you know, it costs too much. It's not gotcha. the right yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I can get a better price somewhere else or, or someone's yep. got better offers. But the fact that they're in the store means they want to buy. So if they walk yep. out that door without buying from you, what was the objection? And even if you don't close the deal, you need to learn what the objection was, learn from it, yep. and, and adapt to it later. So they taught us these techniques like some of, you know, you show them exactly what they said they needed and you showed them a price range and payment plans that suited, you know, their requirements. Yeah. But you hadn't closed the deal. So you couldn't come straight to someone and say, well, what don't you like about it? Because people go, oh, no, no, this, you know, they won't answer that. It's too confronting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you'd say, what, what do you like about it? Let, let me confirm some positives first. You draw those out of them. And you go, if there was something you didn't like about it, what would it be? Oh, it's too expensive. 
you know, then they'll just spit it straight out. It's a, it's a soft way to draw the objection out, you know. Man. Um, and then you come up alongside them. So if I can show you a way that you can get this desk that you like for these reasons you just gave me in a way that didn't impact your finances, okay, let's go and have a look at FlexiRent. And you walk them through those options and how you could use it as a tax offset uh, rather than a depreciated asset. You use it as a liability and blah, blah, blah. And bang, close the deal. Close the deal. That that level of training, uh, yeah, I I learned a lot from that. The other part that I... Going back to parachute days, uh, as a parachute jump instructor on my PJI course, my uh, first lesson that got assessed, um, flight flight two, um, where you get the students up, jumping around, you know, swinging off the, the risers and stuff. I gave that lesson at the end of it. The instructor said to me, um, how do you think you went in that lesson? I said, yeah, I think I did all right. I hit all the uh, all the teaching points were met, uh, confirmed. They, they knew what they were doing. Uh, yeah, I, I think, and I, I was well within time. He said, yeah, look, technically that's one of the best lessons I've ever seen. You you covered all the points perfectly, but I failed you. <laughs> what? <laughs> How can you oh, fail me? And he said, you didn't have any sparkle. There was no razzle-dazzle, you know. You, you didn't sell it to me. I thought, what? And he goes, mate, you're a salesman. Ooh. And I'm thinking, mate, I'm, I'm a parach- I want to be a parachute jump instructor, not a salesman. And I was yeah. angry. Anyway, I had 10 minutes to prepare for the next lesson. I stewed on this all night. But then that night, I was thinking about it, and I thought, he's right. He's 100% mm. right. Um, jumping out of a plane, it's not just the technical parts of doing that. There's a lot of emotional aspects. Yeah, You've got to make some big leaps of faith emotionally and in here. Um, and so I do have to sell that. I've got to sell them confidence in our, our equipment, our training yep. systems, training. Uh, and me yep. as an instructor, and them and their ability to assimilate and apply the information that we've given them. That mm. he's right. I got to. I got to be more of a salesman. Um, well, and so I carried some of that over into Harvey Norman's as well. You know, yeah, I yeah. would just bring uh, confidence to my discussion instead of yeah. waffling around and sounding uncertain. Uh, you know, or if I didn't know something, mate, I don't know what that is. Let's go and see the text now, and I'll I'll, I'll get yeah. you a rock solid answer on that. Um, yeah, but man, that's thought. awesome. Parachute yeah, instructor being the salesman. Yeah, that's, that's not me. But when you put it in that context, and now that you just mentioned it, and when you were, when you started explaining, I was like, yeah, true. That's a good point. I was trying to think back to some of the instructors that I had on my parachute instructor course. I don't think I think because I was just my first time doing it anyway. I think because it was just also new to me, I wasn't really looking or maybe I didn't pick up on the selling points of it. I was just like, man, I've got to get these drills right because <laughs> I don't yeah, want to spot in. So I was yeah, exactly. just trying to focus. Okay, yeah, these are the, okay, that's the, that's for the emergency. Okay, that's those drills. All right, this is how I need to land. This is how I need to lock it in. I was like, yeah, they were, they yeah. were probably very animated and, and uh, helpful in a lot of ways, but I, I can't remember any of that. I was just probably somewhat scared and focused on trying to make sure I wasn't going to die. Didn't hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, case. Oh man. No, but that's, yeah, that's a great yeah. point. I love that. So I worked for Harvey Normans for quite a while and then, um, I, I started my own business window cleaning. Yeah. I was going to ask thought, you about that. Yeah. So how, it's how far, cleaning. when did you decide that you're going to start your own business and did you cut away completely from Harvey Norman at that time, or did you still just yeah, keep one yeah. foot in no, sort I of just, part-time? I did a clean break. Um, right. Harvey's was good, but, like, I was working for someone else. 
was yeah. working their hours when they wanted, you know, and, and you're just pushing, pushing, pushing for sales. Yeah. And it, it, tick that box, I'm ready to move, you know, and, yeah. and the, the next big challenge. And I thought, window cleaning is easy. Um, for about 75 bucks, you can buy all the equipment you need. That's it. Yep. A, a bucket, the, uh, the, the the long mop, the squeegee, and a couple of uh, scrim cloths. That's it. That's all you need to get. Oh, and some uh, dishwashing detergent. That's all you need to get started. So on my old uh, Epsom 600 printer, I've I've printed up all these little flyers, and I just did a letterbox drop uh, around my block, and uh, I threw out this really crazy uh, introductory offer. 25 bucks, all your windows inside and out, whereas the going rate in in that day would have probably been about 120 bucks to do inside and out uh, windows, and it would probably take three to four hours. Um, yeah. as an introductory offer, uh, I just, I just wanted to get some feedback out of, yeah. um, and I, and I got the, the essential numbers I needed out of every 25 flyers that went out there. I got one introductory offer out of every five introductory offers I did. I got one permanent customer, you know, wow. out of every, uh, 10 permanent customers I got, I got two referrals. So uh, using those numbers, <clears throat> I pulled together a business plan. And one of my first customers was the, um, small business development center, uh, up in Joondalup, and they right. were great because uh, I'd go in and clean their windows, and and when the guy wasn't busy, we'd just be talking about stuff, and he said, "Have you got a business plan? A business what? <laughs> Have you got a business plan? <laughs> I don't know." He goes, "He'd give me these books and these pamphlets and stuff." I'd come back in uh, a month later to do his windows again. I said, "I'm reading the stuff in this business plan stuff." He says, talks in here about uh, upselling and diversification. I said, "Who does your cleaning?" He goes. <laughs> He goes, oh, we just clean the place ourselves. I said, no, you, you should, well, I'll do your cleaning. So I upsold him. <laughs> now I'm doing his windows and cleaning the office, you know. And I learned so much. And I pulled together uh, my business plan, uh, won me uh, the first runner-up for the Joondalup Telstra Small Business Awards in 1999. I saw that. Yeah. Window cleaning was the excuse to get on the property, and that's where the cheeky Samoan salesman came out. And he said, <laughs> I can get... 95% of those stains on your oil stains out of your driveway, knowing I could get 97%, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I can, I've got these special window treatments I can use uh, to treat the anodized window frames for people who live near the coast. Uh, and just upsell, upsell, upsell. Uh, I picked up more cleaning contracts. I was cleaning uh, a school, uh, about five or six different businesses. The, uh, the indoor beach volleyball, Man, that, is that right? <laughs> yeah, they and had Joondalup. a thing where, yeah, once a month yeah. the Joondalup indoor beach volleyball uh, guys had this um, nude volleyball on a on, really? on a Friday. Yeah, and it was uh, lights out, just uh, UV lights, and they kept saying to me, you know, this weekend have you got nothing on? You should come over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You they didn't were, go, did you? Did you go? No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, w- I would have embarrassed some other people. <laughs> but, but I developed quite a few customers. Uh, I ended up having um, uh, quite a few employees. Uh, well, quite a yeah. few. Four employees. Uh, that, that was hard work. And that, that was yeah, right yeah. at the stage when um, GST first came in, you know. And yeah, I struggled well, with that stuff, you know. I'm, I'm working my way through all this stuff, doing the books. and. I, I'm probably spending as much time doing bookkeeping as I was yep. actually running a bit, you know, getting out there and working in my own business. 
And I got to the point where I was thinking, I'm making Telstra rich with all these work phones I've got out there with these people. I'm making my accountant rich. Uh, all, all these guys are making money out of my business except me. What's going on here? And then uh, one of my customers was um, uh, Osprey Asset Management, OAM. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Osprey Asset. Yeah, so the industry in joke is uh, it's OAM actually stands for Old Army Men. So, Old Army Men. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a group of um, group of guys that got out, um, really capable fellas like uh, Pete Terandro, yeah. uh, Bobby Hunter, um, and and they they pulled together a business and they picked up some good jobs, you know, and they were one of my window cleaning customers, and um, right. we'd be around there cleaning their windows and you get. Hey, Phil, Phil, knock on, knock on the window. Come inside, come inside. And he'd go inside and go, you speak Indonesian, don't you? I said, well, yeah, sort of. Uh, I did a few trips over there. I did the, did some of the, I didn't do any of the formal courses. They said, oh, we've yeah. got a gig over there. I said, no, nah, no, nah, mate, I've, I've got my own business. <laughs> well, they kept yeah. up on me for a while until finally I said, look, just because you got no one else, I'll go over and do this one-month stint in Indonesia for you um, and then uh, get someone else in. All right. Yeah. And it was a mine that was in Karen Karen maintenance. She'd been shut down, so he went up there for a, a one month stint on this uh, mine in North Sulawesi, and I loved it. Right? Yeah. It was like putting on a comfortable old pair of shoes again, just going. Oh, I was in my <laughs> element. Um, I could see things developing and problems evolving that other people couldn't, just because of my yeah. background. Um, I could see where the weaknesses were. Um, I had the I was in the habit at like two o'clock in the morning if I couldn't sleep, gear on, sneak out the door and go and check on the guards. It didn't matter. I'd do cross country 3Ks just to get to a remote checkpoint where they think there's no one's coming out here. And <laughs> you'd lob up and the guards asleep with his feet on the table, you know, uh, and it's just catching these guys out. And, and mate, I shook it up and I had a great time. And uh, yeah. And, and uh, the guards appreciate it too because now they're starting to get some coaching and direction uh, and some feedback and, and encouragement yeah. and support and equipment and, and just a pat on the back, you know, recognition awards and things like that. They'd never seen that before. And I, and I made more money in that one month than I did in three months, you know. Uh, With the business that you had. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. mate, it's a mugs game. So I set up a pseudo manager and I just let the the other business decline while I just focused on that was it. I was on the international security circuit after that. Um, yeah, well, that's because that's that's the part that I've got in my notes here um, for you, which I wanted to go into. So you you've already been bringing all these skills and stuff to bear with regards to the the journey so far, and then getting to this stage. It sounds like you've gone there on this job. You've seen a whole other world. You loved it. And you've thought I can make an impact here. I can I can have a good impact yeah. here. Um, and, and you, and, yeah. you know, and it's one of those things where you actually feel good. You feel yeah. really good that I know I'm doing something good here. I'm keeping the client happy. I'm actually looking after yeah. these security guards and making their life a better lot. They've actually got a career yeah. man management path now. Uh, they've got a future to aspire to. Not just I'm going to open and close gates for 32 years and retire happy. Yeah. You know, and stuff like um. You'd run Kim's games yeah. with them, you know, just simple stuff yeah. like that. And uh, I took one ragtag team of uh, scruffy guys, but, but uh, some of the best blokes I've ever worked with, we <laughs> running things like Kim's games, teaching them about observation and deduction. Yep. Uh, towards the end there, <coughs> the Kim's game would paint a picture 
you know, if you found these 10 items, they actually told a story. And the story said, look out, there's someone behind you. You know, there's someone yeah. in the interior. There's, of da- there's, a, there's danger present right now, you know. And they, they, that's yeah. what the uh, the Kim's Games pictures and, and, and the observation lanes would, uh, would paint. And we took these guys who we would get these reports, oh, someone broke into the warehouse, someone broke into the warehouse. After we'd run all this training for these guys, we go, someone climbed in through this part uh, of the fence uh, between 7.30 and 8 o'clock last night, and then they left uh, after 10 o'clock. And you go, how did you, how did you know what time they came in? They said, well, because of their, their footprints. You could see by their footprints here, these ones have raindrops in them, those ones didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so and then they've timed it. It rained at seven o'clock last night, and so yeah. and then they've they've worked out the timing. So, you go, well, why did they climb yeah. through that part of the fence? Because those those two lights are out. Uh, and what did they take? It looks like they've taken about fourteen meters of this uh, copper cable off the drum, cut it into three meter sections based on the amount of iron filings. Then they hidden the grass here, you know. And, and one of the reports came back and it said, um, the uh, one of the perpetrators that uh, left there had a uh, motorcycle. We think it was uh, the such-and-such such king, blah, blah, blah model. I said, how, how do you know that? He goes, because it, um, the tyre, the tyre tread marks are unique to tire that bike there. It has a different rim. And this was a brand-new tyre because it still had, you know, the little wispy... Uh, yeah, the like bits head, around it on the tyre itself. Yeah. yeah. And, and they had the photographs of the of the tracks, and you think, holy crap. And we went into town. Far out. One, one person who owned one of those motorbikes had bought a new tyre in the last three weeks. And Set guess where right. he worked? He worked at the warehouse. So, <laughs> Set you know, right. So, yeah, so just like, just get, and the sense of pride that these guys had at just what used to be someone PC going in the warehouse yeah, is starting yeah. to real detailed depth. And they'd be sitting there oh, on, right. on guard duty at night time thinking about this stuff that they've been told coming up with all these crazy ideas and stuff, and they'd pitch them to me in the morning and go, no, no, that's crap. Stop. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> well, they come up with something and you go, man, that's awesome. I hadn't thought about yeah. that before. Right, get these two guys here, work with them, and come up with a plan. You know? Wow. So, that's awesome, yeah, man. That's such a good story. Well, good experience to have and share. And it sounds like you had a number of those. Yeah. Oh, mate. You know, um, but one of my favorite things, and I still do it even today in Australia, um, You'll be working with the security team and say, righto, you two, come with me. Let's go and have a look at the fence. And they go, so we walk over and we look at the fence. You go, what can you see? I can see a fence. You go, oh, mate, look at the fence. What can you see? <laughs> and so we talk about, you know, the fencing fabric, the poles, the spacing, how de- what type of earth is it going into, how deep is the footing, the uh, top, middle, and uh, and bottom uh, uh, guide wires, the uh, barbed wire on the top. Uh, on the t- on those tension wires, uh, how many, at what interval are they crimped and spaced? Where the fencing fabric goes onto the pole is it a spiral wrap or an in individual rings? And why would it be different? You know, if you cut a spiral in one yeah, place, the whole right. thing unravels. Yeah. The individual rings, you cut it in one place, you got to cut it again. We talk about that, and I say, right, if you're going to climb over this fence, where would you climb? Here in the middle, or over here by the pole? And they go, well, here by the pole. So right now. Imagine you've grabbed the fence, you're about to climb up. Where are your hands? My hands are just above where my head is. Where's your foot? Oh, it's about level with where my knee is. Are your hands going to pull or push? They're going to pull. Is your foot going to pull or push? It's going to push. What's that going to do to the fencing fabric? It's going to distort it. Can you see that when you stand directly opposite it? Not really. 
look down the fence over there, what can you see? And they look down to the right, about 100 metres away, they go, oh, there's, it's pulled out there. It's dented <laughs> in there. So, right, what do you think happened then? Someone climbed in. They go, exactly. So they, now they got their head around that. And I say, right, now imagine you're perched like a possum at the top of the fence, holding on to that, you know, the, the bit of post that sticks back, and you're about to climb over. Where are you going to put your feet? On the top. Yeah. How far, what's that going to do to the little triangular piece of the fencing fabric that sits above the top tension line? What's going yeah. to bend it? Which way is it going to bend it, in or out? Oh, it's going to bend it in. Oh, we've got a directional telltale now on mm. where you climb there. And so you walk them through that whole process there. Uh, we talk about contrary signs where if the telltale's at the top pointed in, but the pull push on the fencing fabric was inverted, what does that mean? It means they climbed in and out at the same point. You know, and I'd, I wouldn't give them all these answers. We walk through this process over about 30 minutes. And yeah. then at the end of it, I say, right, if you're going to break in here to do something, you're going to break in by day or night. I'm going to do it by night. So if you're going to do it by night, why would you choose this post as opposed to any other one? And then I look up. And they look up and they go, oh, because the light's not working. I say, exactly. <laughs> so, so now... We walk them through a process and say, like, during the day when you're patrolling, if you're in the car, you drive the car, you look at the fence line, and I want you to just check all the check for telltales along the fence. Teach them about uh, Moya pattern interference effects and how to check fence lines for for distortions, how to check the top, uh, and then we look, we talk about ground sign and disturbance. Yeah, and yeah. Say, at night time, can you check the fence? No, you can't. So what can you check then? We check the lights. Yeah, exactly. So at night time, I want you inspecting which lights are out. And by daytime, I want you inspecting. The, and all of a sudden, these, this, this stuff should be in a basic security guard course, but it isn't. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's only some cheeky sucker who's climbed over a few fences in his time. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I just have this experience of being able to uh, pull together the counters for it. Uh, and you yeah. add that level of value to somebody's life and their experience uh, and give them few Kim's games to improve their memory and their observation skills. Um, it, it, mate, this, it, it's really enriching for me to be able to pass that stuff on. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, with about 10% of them, you see the lights come on and they grab it and run, you know, uh, and that, that, that floats by boat. That's awesome, mate. I can see how enriching that is, just the way that you speak about it and there's there's like – there's a joy, there's a light that comes up on your face because I can imagine you seeing the faces of the people that you're sitting down or standing there speaking to and teaching. And I can imagine that they're really getting a heck of a lot of value out of it. They're learning something that's really applicable that's going to help them and being able to do it in their work environment for what they're doing. Um, so that's yeah. awesome, bro. Really great yeah, to hear. For, for the inquiring mind, security guard should yeah. be one of the most exciting jobs there is. You know, yeah, you're constantly yeah. out there, like, what can be going on here? What would I do? How would I climb over this fence? But so many people just rock up, make a coffee, sit down in the guard hut, you know, yeah. stare out into the yeah. darkness with their night blind, with their night vision. That's right. <laughs> all, yeah. all these days, they're just on their phone, but in the uniform and just pushing buttons yeah. on the phone sort of thing. So, man, you make a really good point because, yeah, here at least here in NZ anyway, a lot of the security type roles – and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody that's in that space, but it is, in my experience from what I've seen here, it's been viewed as not really that, you know, sort of not uh, not to the level it. of what it could be. Yeah, you don't yeah. aspire. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's certainly missing a lot of potential. 
But can Absolutely. you imagine if you Man, put together a security company and you trained them to that level? Yeah. Uh, their, yeah. their reporting, their observation, uh, the value that they could add. Man, yep. that there would that would be a big business. That would be a big point of difference. Um, Massive opportunities for them, yeah. And it yeah. would give um, businesses uh, confidence in the service that they're getting and, and a whole bunch of things, the wraparound stuff for the individual providing that service for the companies both providing the security and the company receiving it. Um, yeah. yeah, that'd be awesome. So it's great to hear you speak about that and how you've – it made me laugh when you're talking about will that push or will that pull and then at the top if they put their leg up is it going to bend it in or out it's like you know all those pointers and indicators from a tracking course and or well, you already yeah. mentioned you spoke about ground sign and stuff yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so so much crossover and value um just in the stuff that we've spoken about so far or that you've spoken about and i want to stay on this theme with regards to what you've been doing because you've gone out You've worked Harvey Norman. You've gotten into this. Okay, yeah, I want to work for myself. Created this cleaning business. It's been up for the runner-up in that small business of the year in June. Telstra small business of the year. And then you've seen old uh, old army men's group <laughs> in an opportunity, yeah. or that they've asked you to go over. You've gone over. You've seen these opportunities, and now you're you're are you so you're straight into it. How long after that that trip? So I'm assuming did you do the one month trip? for OAM, then come back and then start to put the wheels in motion to create your own? No, or? No, I th- I th- no, I didn't. I never created my own business. I always worked for... Oh, right. Uh, in fact, for about 20 years on and off, I worked uh, with OAM. But, um, oh, wow. Pulled together, uh, did, did quite a few gigs uh, in Indonesia. Um, yep. One of the things OAM did, which was really, really clever, was they had, uh, there was a clause in the contract that said, after I'd worked for a company for 12 months, if they wanted to employ me directly, OAM wouldn't oppose that. Um, and that happened on one of the biggest jobs I had. I was working for a nickel mine um, yep. in Indonesia, the fourth largest mine in Indonesia. Uh, after 12 months, they picked me up as an employee. And so I worked for them. Is this for the. Another... Oh, sorry. No, uh, no. Yeah, I was going to say, is this the hostage siege one? Because I'm yeah, keen to yeah, hear we, about that. Mate, we, yeah. we had quite a few. Well, so. Uh, Early 2000s, uh, late 1999, uh, 1999 to 2004, was, there were some pretty troubled times. Um, yeah. And the uh, a lot of a lot of blokes were coming back uh, with terrorist training from overseas in Afghanistan and bringing you know that skill set back into the yeah. uh, into the region. We had uh, different intelligence sources that were kind of amateur. You kind of plugged into the the open source network and and the usual um, uh, consular intelligence network. But consular intelligence networks work in one direction. There's plenty of people (laughs) going in. There's not much coming out. Um, And so a lot of it we're just making up. Um, But all the warning signs were there, and there were quite a few groups active throughout Indonesia, and we were all aware of three groups within our region. So a few interesting things happened. Um, One of the best things I did working in the mine was, um, you know know how good operators sit down with the intelligence team on a regular basis and Mm. get their feedback. So for me, the in-house, the the company's intelligence team, the next best thing was the uh, internal audit. Because they're looking yep. at the paper trails that have red flags, um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at the footprints in the sand, and we compare where the man we had like 85% match up. There's there's some stuff. Is that right? Here. 
Uh, one of the biggest triggers, and the, the first one uh, that, that said to us, look, there's, there's a lot more going on here. Um, we had, uh, there was an explosion that occurred in a small village nearby. And uh, everyone had reported this explosion, but uh, by the time the re official reports came back, it had been downgraded to a, um, an underarm deodorant can had exploded in a, um, in a, in a rubbish fire. Well, we, we heard that one and a half kilometres away, so that wasn't an underarm deodorant can. Deodorant can, yeah, yeah. We tried to access the area where the fire was and was reported, and uh, we were prevented from getting in there. Uh, there was a uh, a religious training facility, uh, a religious school, uh, a pasantrine, uh on the edge of the village heading down there, which is unusual in itself because normally the pasantrines will be in the centre of the village. They want to advertise, uh, you know, how, how, what, what a good influence they are and how well behaved their students are. This one's tucked away on the edge, red flag one. Uh, they prevented us from driving down the road, red flag two. We heard that bang one and a half k's away, red flag three. Yeah. So um, I sent a team of guys to come in cross-country down through the back of the mining area to have a look. The photos yeah. they sent back uh, showed us uh, an indentation in the ground and bi-directional scoring. There was a pipe Far bomb out. where one of the ends came off. So someone's playing with making black powder pipe bombs. So yeah. there's a red flag. So we started looking at this uh, religious facility a lot more closely, and we found that one of the employees working for us um, was donating what, what probably worked out to about one and a half times his net pay every month to these guys. You know, to them. How's he donating more than we actually pay him every month to this organisation? And so we drilled into it, and unproven, but the, the theory we came up with was that of an organisation within the organisation. Because coincidentally, around the same time, the traditional way that the, uh, the, the known terrorist groups that were being tracked financially uh, within Indonesia at that time, they'd financed themselves almost primarily by robbing the rich uh, gold merchants. They were usually illegal gold mining merchants, the ones trafficking yeah, right. because the bulk of them were Chinese, you know, and so the Indonesians had no problem knocking over some fat cat Chinese merchant uh, and taking stolen or illegal goods off them to fight because none of it's on the books and it's really yeah. hard to track and quantify. But funny enough, they'd all dried up around about the same time at the same time that we developed this theory and it got some other people came up around the same time through similar methods, came to similar conclusions of the company within the company. And if if you hold certain key positions, you can, like, so procurement, contracts, yep. um, HR, um, internal audit, and security. If you can take those key roles, you can start to siphon, cut, and uh, sift things off to one side, and you mm. protect any, any way of, of getting access to it. Um, and if you do get caught through, you can set up a scapegoat He'll take the brunt, and we just continue business as usual. So that was our theory. We never managed to prove any of that. But then looking yeah. into those things, um, things got more and more aggressive. Um, so, for example, one of the – I love penetration testing, red teaming things. <laughs> um, don't listen to their reports. Go out and see what they're actually capable of. You know, Try and climb over there. So we, based on what we'd learned about the company within the company, or the, the theory, yeah. we wanted to test the red team that – so uh, we pulled together five steps removed uh, an approach 
for a tender. So for what, what we managed to set up at arm's length was um, on a construction project, a contractor to bid for a job and map the dark side of the tender process, you know. And that's what we, we started doing exactly that. And they were coming in and they were picking up, okay, this guy here is going to tell you that you failed the first vet, uh, but for this price here, he'll get you into, you know, this, the, the next uh, selection process. And then this one yeah. here, you've got these problems here, but you need to up your bid, you know, by about 40%. Uh, you can keep... 10% of that 40 and the other 30 comes to me, you know, if you get awarded the contract. And then over here, and we started mapping all of these things. But while they were mapping that, they came across uh, some other uh, more sinister information that indicated yeah. there were a group of people going to have a crack at us. So uh, oh, yeah. based on that and then some embassy warnings about uh, threats uh, uh, that recently we just discovered uh, a whole lot of uh, some firearms and some... Uh, documentation that explained how to how to make bombs uh, and some yep. uh, t-shirts and uniforms and headbands uh, for one of the organisations buried down in the village. So all these things cascaded together. Oh, yeah. That was our first uh, evacuation. And so as a prudent measure, we evacuated the, the mine. Uh, we yep. left an ex essential skeleton crew only to continue uh, baseline production. Uh, we got everyone out of there. We also, and this was controversial, uh, made friends with the Indonesian national intelligence guys. Um, so it started off, we, we wanted to, uh, I had uh, through through some contacts I had in Jakarta, um, a pretty amazing guy called uh, Ken Conboy. He said, I can get you in front of, um, I can get you in front of the big guy. Um, and we, we were all set to go and see this guy, but then he, he couldn't meet us. It actually worked out it was the best thing that could have happened because um, this was just before the election where if Megawati won the election, uh, Hendro Priono, the boss, is going to change out and there'll be a new guy. Uh, yeah, right. I cut a deal, meet this bloke, and then he's going to change. Yeah. You know? um, so by coincidence, just by sheer luck, <laughs> we met the number two guy, Asad Saeed. Um, he, was, he was there after the election. Uh, so we yeah. established... A really good contact with him, and mate, talking to him was brilliant. Um, we've been yeah. speaking with the Canadian embassy, uh, the U.S. embassy, and the Australian embassy, uh, and we were getting nothing. Um, <laughs> the Canadians would have shared more with us, but they, they just didn't have uh, access to stuff. Uh, and so we sat down with Indonesian national intelligence, and he just came out with bang, here's here's what it is, and he laid out all these different things, and you're looking and you go. Oh, mate, that makes it. Why isn't anyone telling us this stuff? You know, is, yeah, is it that yeah. secret? You know, commercially, this seriously had impact on us. And, and yeah. so, what he's laid out is that uh, this looks more like bluff um, rather than uh, an, an actual threat. There was a low probability that this threat that we'd discovered was going to uh, uh, you know, come to fruition. But the prudent course is if you've been warned by your own embassies, get out of town. You should get out. Yeah. In the background, the uh, Western governments were pressuring Indonesia to do more, and so that anything to discredit Indonesia was important to them. To ha have the fourth largest mm. mine evacuate to a foreign country would have been a big tick in the box. So what we decided to do was we evacuated, but we stayed in Indonesia, we went to Bali. 
So yeah, far right. enough away, but still in Indonesia. Indonesia saved face. The embassies were angry at us, but mate, you can get angry all you like until you start sharing information. I'm not, I'm not going to yeah, act yeah. on rumours, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that was the that was the we, we were out for six weeks, uh, and then once we had a, it's easy to evacuate. It's not so easy to put your hand on your heart and say, right, this is the this is what it looks like to go back in. Yeah, this is when it's safe yeah. to go back home. Um, so we learned that one. Uh, but within six weeks, we, we worked out, this is what it looks like. This is uh, These conditions are met. Uh, we're happy to go back in. Yeah. We went back in. Then we had some, uh, it, it turned out it was, uh, we knew we had some problems with some contracts, you know. Um, big companies that have worked for quite a while in, a, in an area will tend to favour a handful of um local contractors that are capable and that they've groomed over a long period of time to be compliant with, you know, the safety, um, you know, the, the, the accounting and invoicing, you know, they've, they've, they've got them up to a certain standard. So, of course, they're going to be preferred vendors for any work that comes up. Mm. But we encourage those big contractors to outsource those components that they can to keep giving the little guy a go, you know. Um, don't just take it all for yourself. Otherwise, they're going to burn your house down. So, you yeah. keep... Spread the love. Spread the love. Around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Increase the capacity. Give the the little guys a go, and and bit by bit, you know, bring them up to speed. Um, keep yeah. the bench warm, if you, if you like. Well, in that process, uh, someone had taken some shortcuts. wasn't getting as much money as he wanted, and kept mm. the same profit margin, and passed on the uh, the losses <clears throat> to his workforce. He wasn't. Um, a big enough man to say to everyone, no, actually, I, I just kept the profits and I ripped you guys off. He yeah. blamed the company. So <sighs> overnight, yeah. we, we knew there were some pro- contract problems, but this thing flared up and overnight we had about, um, I heard rumours of people massing down near the golf course at right. about uh, 5.30 in the morning. So I've gone for a drive down there at uh, quarter to six and, uh, mate, they blokes all over the road throwing rocks at the car, trying to stop me. Uh, done a really perfect reverse 180 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. got out of there and hoofed back up the road going right close the gate shut this down stop these guys here the, that uh, those shift changes are going to have to go on hold call the IMT get these guys down here yeah. we have to yeah. have an emergency management meeting but the whole thing evolved really really quickly oh, um, yeah. one bus pushed its way through the roadblock told the security guards nope we're going to work and they drove straight through there and into this and they got seized at the golf course, taken at knife point uh, by a whole lot of angry people and marched into an right. area. And the one piece we missed, and I, I kicked myself for this, but you, you live and learn. Um, yep. We'd had a whole lot of expats had gone up to drop family members at the airport, which was the other side of the problem, uh, to catch the first flight out. Uh, and they were all they all drove straight back into the freight. Coming uh, back, we yeah. That. yeah. So we had about... 23 expats, uh, 51 national workforce. Um, and within those expats, they weren't uh, ex- just expats workers. Uh, they were there with their wives and their kids. Mm. Um, we had the uh, chief financial officer was in there visiting, and his yeah. daughter had come over, and she's caught in there as well. Oh, uh, so there's people's kids caught in this thing. Um, yeah. And so all of a sudden, I'm Johnny on the spot. All eyes are on. What are you doing about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I learned real quick, you know, you, you can't bullshit people. Um, we called a town hall meeting uh, and I've given them a briefing on, right, this is what we know. 
this is what the problem is, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, um, this is what we're attempting to do about it and find out, and this is what I need you to do. And we wrote, wrote yeah. through a whole lot. And, man, we did some cool stuff like um, <laughs> we developed an in-house intelligence team. Um, they're a group of scruffy guys that were smarter than the average bear that I'd identified that I pulled, a, pulled aside for, like, um, you know, private security spec ops stuff. Stick yeah, yeah. There, go, go down and have a few beers in that bar here and find out what's going on with this, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. So we yeah. tasked them, get in there, find out who are the key players, what are their plans, give me some contact numbers. Uh, and so that, they came back with a list of, this is exactly what the problem is, these are the ringleaders. There are 26, they call them core lab, uh, field coordinators. Uh, their intended plan is to hold these hostages and lock you in there until you have to do an emergency shutdown of the mine, which is going to, uh, of the process plant, which will cost 10 million bucks just to do a hard shutdown on that. Mm. On that uh, and we've got a maximum time of 16 hours that we can extend people's shifts before we've got to go into a hard shutdown. So yep. everyone I've got to, to, to do a shift change is on the wrong side of the fence, you know? Yeah, yeah. They came back with all that information and so just broke the um, all of the family members sitting around the, the hall into groups and gave them, right, this group here with five phones, you've got this phone number. And I gave those 26 phone numbers out, said, put it on speed dial, and when you get the command, go. This is when we're going to try and run a shift change. I want all 10 of you speed dialing this number. I want you to lock them out. You know, it's going to be a denial of service operation. So their field coordinators can't talk to each other and say, they're coming out through here. They're going to try and take a boat up through the lake or they're sneaking through the golf course. Uh, We shut them down and we managed to do three shift changes just by shutting down those field coordinators. Yeah. And infiltrating their meetings and getting that information. But um, (laughs) within about 90 minutes of the hostages being taken, we had a great relationship with the military intelligence guys. Um, yeah, I found in most developing nations, you can't just befriend the police force. Mm. You've got to you've got to take on the police and the military. And you'll find in, in many of those countries, they'll have an equal and opposite entity. Like you'll have special forces, paramilitary police units, you know, with para- advanced parachute ops, just as an offset and a counterbalance in case the military goes rogue, the cops can take them on or vice yeah. versa you know there's keeping the balance and so the same thing goes for us working with those guys I always kept the balance don't go too far one way or the other you yeah. befriend both we uh, asked the cops to come and help us but they became uniform spectators really they, um, they they weren't they weren't motivated to shut it down uh, in any great hurry so I yeah, went on right. the other side and we got the military guys in to back us up but we yeah. had um plain clothes, uh, armed uh, military intelligence guys surrounding our hostages uh, within, within about 90 minutes. They'd all passed on a keyword to these mm. people to prove proof of identity. And we'd SMS and we are talking to these people by mobile phone, got them to shut down their phones and different ways to stay secure. But if things got ugly, that that's the guy there. You're going to follow him. We'd set up a reception party about 150 metres away in a creek line. We had the dogs in reserve and a whole lot of other assets that could swarm forward uh, to meet and greet and process mm. them through the reception area. And so I was comfortable that, you know, we had, we had a plan. Uh, our emergency action was stood up and ready to go. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but it, it was there. And then 
keeping the peace and briefing people. This is what I'm doing to make sure your daughter's all right. You know, yeah. Um, I made some rookie mistakes during that whole thing. Like, um, I tried to stay awake for 72 hours. Hmm. You know, I, I just could all not right. go and lie down. And if I did go yeah. and lie down, I could even close my eyes. I wasn't going to sleep, and I couldn't yeah. rest. And I thought, well, I thought, and I stayed in that ops room. Uh, and just working the problem and looking at that map and talking to people and just trying to find, is there a better way we can do this? Have we missed anything? What about that over there? You, I need you. I, I can't think straight. You guys take this plan, pull it apart, yeah. and yeah, analyze yeah. it, and come back to me and tell me what you think, you know? Uh, just doing all that. But I was a zombie by the end of it. I, mm, I should have even, I if, even just go and lie down for two hours with your eyes shut and not sleeping is better than just trying to work the problem for 72 hours straight. That's like going back and doing selection again. Yeah. <laughs> but but this is people's families. This is their loved ones. Yeah. You know? um, you, yeah. The, there's no margin. And so we looked after that. Uh, the military came in and saved us. We used our charter flight to bring a, a ferry a couple of platoons up from down the yep. Makassar. Um, they came in, embarrassed the local policeman, uh, gave them, you know, read them the right act. We got the hostages were released uh, on end of day one, so they were only detained. Wow. For, wouldn't be wouldn't have been much more than twelve hours. So the, the yep. military helped broker that, and that happened amicably. But we were still besieged. Yeah, we still had to run those shift changes. So we ran some drills where we sent a boat across the lake, uh, up into to, towards one of the mining areas. Three or four boats responded to chase this boat, and then we did the denial of service operation, and we took someone cross country up through the mining back roads uh, in to run the shift changes. <laughs> we, uh, once we had two crews up there, they went on 50 50 um, with with stretcher beds and, you yeah, know, and yep. food up at the plant site, and that was it. We didn't we didn't have to shut down the plant, and so that worked well. And wow. one of the the, the biggest things that um, really pleased me. At the end of it, no one resigned. No one said, oh, this place is stuffed. I'm not working here anymore. They were comfortable. This was managed. Uh, this got managed to a level of satisfaction where no one resigned. No Nobody one resigned. Wow. Yeah. They, they were all pretty happy with it. Yeah. Ah, right. And it went for pretty. It went for 72 hours pretty much. Yeah. It was, it, until until wow. it was back to business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. 72 hours of grief. Yeah. Ah, right, yeah. man. See, see, there's a lot of... Uh, um, benefits from selection and RTI and continue to work through all of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, think the, I think the biggest thing I carried over from the old job was the yeah. um, the capacity to get into my adversary's head. Mm. You know, to sit Great there and point. stop and think, how does this look from your side? What, what, what are you looking to achieve from this? What's you know, what motivates you? Uh, what do you want to yeah, achieve? Yeah. What, what is an acceptable mm. fallback position? That you know, if I can offer you a plan B that's going to work, are you going to take that one if you think you're going to lose the, the A plan? And then just working yeah. through that process of getting into my adversary's head. That, that's something I learned from um, Pete Townsend. Um, Pete uh, was, was in the regiment before my time. Uh, I met yeah. him when he was one of the partners at OAM. Uh, we worked right. together on my very first job. He was the guy who took me up and got me embedded in uh, Sulawesi. Um, and mate, what a just brain the size of a room, you know? Uh, yeah. The, the guys, it was one of the don't play chess against Pete Deandre. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's one of those guys. But um, he, he's always three. He can be three or four steps ahead if he wants to be. And and that's wow. you know you, you get 
you get into a situation like that and you think, hmm, what would Pete Tendrow do in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just seek to emulate that. But I had so many good mentors that I could look at mm. and think, you know, the things I'd seen them do and the, the way they behaved. And I thought, right, I'm going to try and emulate that. Man, and, well, it sounds like you certainly did. Yeah, sounds like it worked. Yeah. Sounds like you did. And it's, it's great to hear what I was hearing while I was listening to you speak which was fascinating and really interesting was just hearing about the importance of building relationships and the, and by the, by yeah. just listening to yeah. you communicate the way that you communicate, I can see how and why. And, and I don't know if you attribute that to your upbringing or your military career or, or the courses that you've done, or maybe it was that piece on the, on your jumping, jump instructors course about, you know, I've, I've still failed your knee because you need to be a salesperson. But I think at the end of the day, from my perspective, we're all, trying to sell something at the end of the day, even as parents we are trying to sell our children yeah. the benefits of brushing their teeth morning and night and the benefits yeah. of eating their vegetables, to, even though they might taste yuck, we're, we're trying to sell that to them, you know? And But just listening yeah. to you, I was just like, couldn't help but think, man, the, the relationships that you've been able to build over that period of time um, and to be able to get to a point where you can then also leverage the experiences of your mentors or the people that you've seen as mentors to help you through those is is awesome, mate. And that's the stuff that, uh, you know, part of the reason why my brother-in-law and I wanted to create this particular series was that there's so much to unpack in each unique individual like yourself, what skills you've attained, what skills you're continuing to develop and how you're able to apply that in all these different scenarios. Like that, that's, yeah, it might be somewhat of a familiar example, I guess, or familiar, sorry, not example, but scenario based on your background and knowledge and skills. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that may not be so familiar and, and those those pieces, how you've been able to bring that to bear. And this this is just one situation is really fascinating to me. Yeah. So how the 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 outcome of that, what was what was that's a great outcome that nobody resigned, that that people, you know, were happy to stay. What were some of the other, I guess, maybe unexpected outcomes from just that particular, because I'm fascinated by this particular hostage siege and how it's come about and, and what you guys uh, have all been able to do. So it's trying to light on our procurement process. Yeah, um, right. What, what, one of the take-homes for us was that um, if, if we don't expressly tell people what they can and can't do in our contracts, we're at the mercy yeah. of what they do, and, and we do hold a, a vicarious liability on, on the pieces that we've just said, oh, you go and sort that out yourself, you know? Yeah, and gotcha. So it taught us to step up and get a lot more involved and pull together uh, commercially from a contracts perspective, get a lot yep. smarter in uh, how, how we what we engage with uh, and how your, we outsource things. Yeah. Were your contracts then more explicit in terms of the terms of – of service and all that sort of stuff that you guys... Yeah, I, I, I didn't get to the end of that, that rabbit hole, but that, that was the direction oh, right. that we yeah, yeah. yeah, that was one yeah. of the findings. Um, yeah. and, and look, and there, there were quite a few other issues as well. Like, one of them was that in an area where there should be lots of work, there, there wasn't there wasn't enough work available for people, you know. We were running around arresting people, still, stealing um, our nickel slag, uh, and then yeah. if they've come onto your property to steal nickel slag, they're going to start stealing... <laughs> copper, like all the way through to uh, mm. at one point, we were chasing uh, 14 kilometres of uh, aluminium uh, cable that had gone right. before a power line was energised. So they, they hung it on the Friday, it got energised on the Monday, the power didn't come on. Hmm, why is that? Go out and have a look, because there's no wire in the poles. Well, there should be. Wow. We put it up on Friday. So over the weekend, 
there's 14 kilometres of aluminium cables gone missing. Taken. So, yeah, it, it took us two weeks, but we tracked it. We tracked it all the way down to a container, and it had gone down to Makassar, to the port down there, uh, Ujung Pandang, it's called now. But when they opened that container, they also found some massive RSJs, you know, those, those big I-beams. Um, yeah, right. And, and they had our security marking paint on it, and they go, where the hell did they get this from? So I've taken some photos and some dimensions. I've gone up to the boozer that evening, to the, all the, the engineers, and said, hey, do we have any RSJs this big on site? Uh, no, nothing like that, nothing like that. And someone says, well, hang on, except for underneath the main hall bridge. <laughs> wow, and had a look. They got underneath there, gas-axed out these chunks of RSJ. Wow. Because st- still, still's worth money, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even a scrap. And downgraded what was, a, I don't know, a 150-ton bridge. It had been bridge. downgraded to 25 <laughs> tons. And we were rolling 80-ton trucks ar- across it, you know. And you think, oh, oh, gosh. Heck. Um so then they've had to recircuit the, all the mining trucks to haul their ore back up to the process plant. Uh, we've gone after this to fix it up. But, yeah, yeah, like crazy, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Crazy, all right. We're, we're arresting all these people. Um, oh, I learned from um, – one of the things I really enjoyed, and this is this is what happened when I was with Two Squadron, part, part of what – one of the things they gave us to do was um, – Phil, you, you can write a few words together and you can make decisions. I want you to go and learn lessons from South Africa uh, or, or around that region because their terrain is similar to Australia. Go and find out what military experiences they had there that we can explore and adapt and, and, and incorporate into our military doctrine. I thought, all right, what am I going to do? So I went and grabbed this book from the library. I, I, I grabbed a handful of books about Rhodesia, fascinated by the yep. place, you know, and... Um, Read the stuff. The one, the book I got stuck on the most, uh, and that I enjoyed the most, and I had them, and I got the most out of, was uh, the elite. Um, the elite. Cole. Yeah. So she was the uh, the wife of the OC of C Squadron, uh, the Rhodesian SAS Squadron, um, and uh, Barbara would be sitting around the house listening to all the all the guys talk when they come to visit her husband, and she said, "You guys should write write these stories down." And they said, "Barbara, we're soldiers, not you know, yeah. not writers." We'll tell the stories, you write them down. So she did. And she pulled together this book called The Elite. Uh, and then it was some fascinating stuff that outlined how they sought to get ahead of the problem. The, the one I love the most, and the one we didn't use it, uh, it didn't become part of Australian doctrine, but I used it in Indonesia, was yeah. you'd throw forward two ambush teams and you'd have a chase team. And you'd try and run your, your adversary into one of the ambush teams and capture them. Um, if they made it through the gap, one of the ambush teams picked up and took on the chase, and then we'd reposition the, the yep. old chase team that's now rested and another ambush team. And we just keep leapfrogging. We had fresh legs, and they yeah. would run them down. And we yep. started arresting people using these techniques uh, with with um, <laughs> some creative driving on my part. TT drivers. Yeah, yeah. We're doing some four-wheel drifting with guys in the back. <laughs> getting around, positioning these cut-off teams and they're just chasing, chasing, running people down. On uh, Christmas Day one day we had, because they thought no one's going to be out on Christmas Day, all these experts are going to be, you know, drinking piss and opening presents. Getting drunk, yeah. Um, I was out there, mate. I was out there with the boys. We were motivated. We have been planning this for about a week in advance and we'd, you know, you go out and you do dry rehearsals on the oval and you walk through the, the mechanics of how it works and everyone starts yep. to understand the leapfrog changeover process. So we got this down pat, and on uh, Christmas Day, the local cop was laughing. He said, I've got standing room only. You know, he only had one cell, 
and he, we had 34 guys in there. And I was looking at that. But, but instead of feeling proud of myself, I actually looked at him and I thought, you poor bastards, you, you're just trying to feed your family, you know. you got nothing better to do. And I thought, I'm, I'm dealing with the symptom of the problem, not the root cause. The root cause yeah. is that there just aren't enough legitimate jobs to go after. Well, what are we going to do? So I took it up with the chief operations officer, uh, who to this day remains a really good friend and a mentor, um, Jimmy yeah. Owens, um, amazing guy. If you look into mining and what people yeah. have achieved, it, mate, he's, he, he's up there. Um, and so Jim, Jim Gowans, Gowans, yeah. He, we we talked about this at length about what, what options were available, and it, it took a while. But what we landed on, um, we had another problem. The other problem that we had was uh, to feed the process plant. We only had one supplier of silica sand uh, that came from Thailand of a certain quality. But funny enough, that sand was also locally available, but no one was mining it. And in business, it, it makes sense. You don't you don't just have one supplier because if something yeah. goes wrong, you know yep. that's it. And so you need to have two to offset uh, the at least two. And so yep. um, what, what we pulled together was a people's mining uh, co-op. You know, wow. we gave them safety standards. We had guys, mining guys, who were retiring from uh, from the nickel mine, who went over and helped set this thing up, uh, and they pulled it together in such a So now, if I arrested somebody, you know, it was I'm I'm happy to arrest you and put you in the clink, mate, because you actually have some legitimate options to yeah. go and actually make some legitimate money. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you chose not to. So yeah, yeah that was wow. Good. That's awesome. And that, is that still running now? That's still running now, Phil? Oh, that, I, I don't know, mate. I, yeah, I left that place yeah. a long time ago, but um, wow. what, 16 years ago, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd like to think so. I hope so. Look, there was enough sand in those river systems, and it was good quality that, yeah, I don't see why yeah. it shouldn't be. Um, Man, but taking awesome. two problems to solve each other is... Yeah, has become a bit of a hallmark of mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like it. It sounds like it. But uh, and, and but sounds like some great outcomes too in the process. So even though it's been sixteen years, hopefully, man, that sounds awesome. I hope I'd like to think that would still be going as well over there. I've not done um, any work over there in Indonesia, so that sounds awesome. Yeah, I wanted to ask you um, about the this and and. Feel free to go back if I've skipped over something as well. But also in line with that, there's so much here, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. You talked about designing, and I'm guessing this is maybe part of your engineering, some of your background and stuff there that oh, you've had or that yeah, you enjoyed. Yeah, but the the project managed the yeah that ballistically rated citadel in West Africa, and you know with yeah. recycled mining material. How did that come about? Like what's so, what's that all about? So um, if you look at you know Mali. So yep. like as a country, it's sort of shaped like as a, a country, yeah, yeah. Yep. And at the like the the intersection of that butterfly, the skinny skinny piece there is pretty much where the Niger River flows through. Um, in general, in West Africa, or actually no, about about five years ago, in general, <laughs> in West yeah. Africa, everything south of the Niger, which was green and had trees, was nice and friendly and happy because yeah, know, there's there's water, there's trees, there's you know, everything north of that Niger was desert. And mm. camels, and they were unhappy. So most of the problems existed in the north, and and that was pretty yep. much what people thought. Are oh, we going to set up a mine? Where is it? North or south of the river? It's south. Oh yeah, that's a fine. <laughs> that's coming. <laughs> well, those yeah. problems started coming south, coming down you know, uh, further and further down. You could progressively see um, 
terrorist groups uh, kidnapping people, um, you know, yeah, attacking right. uh, military infrastructure, anything involved with government infrastructure, uh, and anything that where they could make money. So we, I was working for a gold mine. So we've got expats, we've got gold, yep. and we pay a lot of tax to the government. We, we're a triple target. Why wouldn't yeah. you come after us, you know? And so I'd learned a long time ago, um, th- there's no way you can make yourself um, terrorist-proof, you know? It's not going to happen. But you know the whole, uh, the, the, the um, threat transfer story about the two guys being chased by a grizzly bear? Two no, no, what's that one? So two fellas are getting chased by a grizzly bear and one stops to put his Adidas running shoes on. His friend says, dude, what are you doing? You're not going to outrun a bear because you're wearing sand shoes. And he goes, dude, I don't have to beat the bear. I just have to run faster than you. <laughs> you know? And then he kicks him in the shins and he takes gotcha. off. And the bear eats the slow guy. You know? Eats the slow so, one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so it, it's impractical to try and say we're going to be terrorist-proof like the green zone. But what you want to do is make sure I'm a less attractive target than those other guys who aren't spending the money and doing stuff like we are. And that was yeah. always one of my big things to the security guards is uh, you do crackerjack checks on the vehicles entering this facility and your bag searches on people entering the facility because when they're doing their selection process for the target, they're going to look at you guys and go, uh, we're not going to sneak anything through that gate. uh, We'll go up the road and hit the other guys. So so the better better your searches are, the safer your job's going to be. In that environment, uh, things are coming south. Uh, They've worked out. We've, We've got support from the police who... You know, it's a third world country, and you can't blame them mm. for. They don't get paid very much. They're struggling to pay their own bills. So if they can work both sides and get a kickback from the bad guys, <laughs> what? Why mm. wouldn't you? It's an economic reality, and a lot of people beat themselves to death trying to fight that. But you're not gonna. You're not gonna change it. It, it is what it yeah. is. You need to accept it and plan with it. So mm. that wasn't working too great. We introduced my favourite concept. We need to play both sides. So we got the guard national involved and they came in and they said yeah this is great but it's not defendable uh, the mining company in its wisdom had purchased you know those crew shield uh, ballistically rated containers yeah yeah get a, a, a yeah, 20 foot or a 40 foot she's already ballistically rated you can all lock yeah. down in there that's great that's fantastic lockdown on the deck of a ship yeah. it's not too great sitting around in a paddock uh, in an accommodation area <laughs> on a mine where they can just come along with a crane, pick the whole thing up. I got prepackaged hostages ready to go, <laughs> stick it on a truck and take it up to Timbuktu, you know. So we kind of suggested that, look, this is, you're heading in the right direction, but we probably need a bit more around this, you know. And so they accepted that. And the original planning had come together. They'd looked at using, you know, those big Hescos? The, 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 the Hesco big, huts. Um, uh, yeah, Hesco uh, bags, the, the bulker bags. So you fill yeah, it with gotcha. uh, yeah, yeah. sand and you stack them all up. Yeah. And we started looking at that. And then, like, every two years, you know, the UV is going to break those down. You've got to change yeah. them. And all. It started getting real expensive really fast to yeah, design and build this. Um, so the, we need a smarter way. And the, the client just keeps balking and balking and balking. The costs are blowing yeah, out. Because of the cost, yeah. Oh, and it was ridiculous. Well, there's got to be a smarter way. I can remember down at the indoor ranges, we used, um, you know, in the indoor ranges, they had um, those lamellas, double lamellas. Yep. You know, where the, the strips of rubber hanging down yeah. uh, in a herringbone, 45 degrees. Yep. Like, um, yep. And so uh, I'd looked into the theory of those, and I thought, hey, we've got heaps of old conveyor belt up there. 
Yeah. We've got plenty of old 40-foot. We're actually paying money to backload empty containers that had run deliveries. What are we doing? Let's just keep God. those containers. So we built a big snail shell shape uh, yep. for, out of containers. Um, we welded um, these rails that would hold the double lamella and uh, yep. cut those. Um, oh, what a performance trying to cut conveyor belt. But I bet. We've been I was going to ask. We're, oh, we're working on it for days until one of the engineers came over and looked and he goes, oh, no, just use water and bend it. Yeah, what? He goes, just use, go and get a hose. So someone went and got a hose. He said, now bend it. So it's bent around. There's water running down there. He got a, a box knife and just went, whoop, there you go. <laughs> oh, it was that easy. Really? When you knew, it, when you right. knew what you were doing, it was simple. <laughs> yeah, but we, we were doing it the hard way. And I, was, I had guys wearing cut-proof gloves and you know, <laughs> arms and legs out of the line of fire. And we were really worried someone was going to slice their own fingers off. Um, but we hung all of those strips. We put those containers on the inside. Um, we used some other repurposed containers and got them and we basically built a facility that could comfortably house uh, 250 people um, wow. it had uh, food and water supplies it had an external water water supply uh, toilets showers pretty rudimentary yeah. but but it was there yeah um, and and basic sleeping uh, and benches and things like that and decks of cards <laughs> yeah um, and then uh, we boards? had these yeah, we should have been. <laughs> uh, and then we had on the corners of the facility, we had these, um, we had some firing containers, uh, firing points. So these, yeah, these right. were these actually had uh, armor plate yep. inside them and firing ports. And I did the intervisibility on the fields of fire, and I found it didn't take too much to actually open a couple of ports that looked inward, and the fields of fire within the compound were phenomenal. Uh, so yeah, the external right. coverage was significant. The internal was phenomenal. We did some earthworks to create a double bun system that would stop a vehicle yep. from being able to drive through. Um, if it if it if a vehicle did make an approach, it had to make a long sweeping S S bend approach. It couldn't come in at yep. speed. And then around that, yep. we had a uh, a double razor wire fence. Um, wow! And so that it would it wasn't going to prevent people coming in, but it would slow you down within the yeah. arc of fire of one of those towers. And so we yeah, look at it yeah. and we thought, I think we got this sorted. It's all good until um, we did a stock take of how much ammo the Guard National guys actually carried. And I thought, well, they, they got enough for the first 30 minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're going to run out of ammo pretty fast unless there's a lot of fire discipline or unless we can stockpile a whole lot here. And we looked at it and we thought, well, what are we going to do if we run out of ammo? I thought, that's simple. We ran razor wire. With an, on the inside of the compound in a blind section that you couldn't see as you entered the snail shell. And um, we had yeah. it, put it up against the wall. It's all coiled up. It's got a, a wooden plate over the end, and you can just grab that and run it. And I've just run, run a it. double razor wire string around uh, just a section off. So when you come in, you've got more razor wire, and you're in yeah. the kill zone. So we run mm. out of ammo. We open the gate. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> <It's> a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You build that thing and you look at it and you think, sorry? No, no, go, go. You build that thing and you look at it and you go. Once you finish, once you've built it, you look at it and you think, mate, I feel like going outside the fence going, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You you want to pick a fight because you look at this thing and you go, man, this 
yeah, we ran a whole series of drills, uh, three minutes to lockdown. Some people said, I'm not going in there, I'm not going in there. Oh, that's fine. You take your grab bag and you head down to the golf course. You do whatever you like. This this option's for those who want to take it. Okay? Yeah, uh, yeah, gotcha. How long did it take yeah. to build that? Over what sort of time frame did it take for you guys uh, from where to go? Would have been would have been the better part of nine months. Um, yeah, could have been faster like yeah. if we weren't making changes on the fly. You know, we, we learned some things yep. in placing the containers uh, and some other issues about joining them up, and then we had to backtrack to do some other things. We found some 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 really interesting technology. Like, um, so we built the thing. You think this is great? You'd be standing down there on a forty degree day, and the radiated heat off the top of those containers it was killing you. So we yeah, um, right. found these products where you just put two coats of this uh, plasticized rubbery uh, paint material over the top there. It knocked 80% of the heat out of it, you know. And on a stinking hot day, uh, the aircon could keep up. It was pretty good. Yeah, far uh, out. That's dogs, all right. Use, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, use of dogs, uh, absolutely fantastic asset. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. i we, Africa's probably we, we, I've used dogs in quite a few different sites that we've worked yep. um, but never to the level that we did in Africa uh, there's a, I work with a guy uh, Andy Harper, Andrew Harper um, mate it, what that guy doesn't know about dogs, like the, the level of training, uh, the degree uh, of training that mm. he could give to these dogs was like next level, so he, ex-military dog trainer um, yeah. But the dogs actually had IFF, you know, they, they could target an individual. And so we mm. learned, uh, we, we trained them to uh, target suspicious behavior and to prefer people not wearing PPE. If a person was wearing PPE and been behaving suspiciously, they might get targeted by the dog. But if PPE wearing uh, uniform workers were behaving themselves and there was some a bad guy in the background behaving suspiciously, that dog had targeted them. You know, and yeah, you, you can right. see that. And the the terminal test of objectives, once we got these dogs up to a certain level, was we'd have about six or seven people running around wearing PPE but not doing anything aggressive and someone behaving suspiciously up the back with some shouting and stuff. And uh, you actually, you look down, you look at through the dog's ears and that was like, it's, it's like taking a side picture. You get down behind the dog, <laughs> yeah. no, wrong bloke, oh, that's a bloke there, you know. Yeah, right, once he's gotcha. locked on, you go... You'd release them and whack, um, they would take these guys down. Um, and, and some real clever observations too, like one of the things he pushed was um, you you never wear a visible bite sleeve, you know. Otherwise the dog learns, oh, it's the bite sleeve that yeah, they're getting okay. excited about. He doesn't want yeah. them targeting the sleeve, he wants them looking at the behaviour. And so it was always yep. concealed sleeves. Um, mm. the, the problem with the concealed, uh, you know, bite, bite suits and that stuff they're not as thick. Yeah. <laughs> they don't protect you that much. Man. Oh, I, the, was the, it for your uh, No, no. Just, just you, you don't want them hanging on for too long. Uh, cause you, yeah, cause yeah, gotcha. I think, I think he's about to chew through that thing. But having yeah. said that, um, seven canine arrests, we called them. Um, yep. Out of the seven takedowns, every single bloke we took down with a dog uh, during the time I was there, uh, first port of call was to the um, the medical centre where they got assessed. Yep. And and apart from uh, minor uh, you know abrasions, uh, broken skin, no bleeding and bruising, which is hard to tell on an African guy, 
Um, yeah, yeah. There, there were no serious injuries because those dogs, once well, once you gave them the command out, they were off uh, straight yeah, away. Right. And, and that's again a testament to the level of training that they had. Training. If yeah. somebody went down, the dog didn't go hard, you know. But if yeah. someone was going to argue with the dog and fight them, the dog's going to go hard. And yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And, and it's yeah. interesting and you that you mentioned you can't negotiate with a dog. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's true, eh? Not unless you're the yeah. uh, the trainer or the owner. What, what sort yeah. of dogs were you guys running? So the the preference is uh, Belgian Malinois. Malinois, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, Maligators. Yeah, awesome, mate. But um, when we when we did our dog selection, we actually flew Andy over to Holland to go straight yeah. to uh, uh, one of the more the professional uh, breeders. We weren't going to pick up some secondhand. Yeah, um, yeah, mutt that's half trained. Yeah. Uh, we went straight to a professional breeder, and, and you know what? And it's almost the same price anyway. When you, at the end of the day, yeah, when you look right. at the, the, the first class dogs, we were looking for two Malinois, but he came back with a, uh, a shepherd and a Malinois. And oh, wow. uh, this, the shepherd, um, his motivation for bite toys and training was off the charts. Uh, this dog was <laughs> so trainable. Uh, in fact, he was so good. Uh, we started to use him for detection training um, because it was right. just easy to teach anything for that tug toy, anything for that tug <laughs> toy. He was just nuts about it, you know. Yeah, uh, and, and, and th- th- that makes him trainable. Yeah, yeah. okay, so that's awesome. It's great that well, you got somebody like was it Greg? Did you say Greg Harper? I, no, Andrew. Andrew Harper. An- great to have, yeah. Great to have somebody like him with his. I guess he's the guy that you sent. You sent Andrew yeah. over. Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, suss out the dogs. Or the Netherlands, yeah. Man, yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, he done it before with uh, military dogs. And then my yeah. two pooches at home uh, got the benefit of his training as well. So. Oh, man. <laughs> so come home. They're, they're not attack dogs. Uh, mine yeah. are just, they're happy-go-lucky pets. But the um, what I've, I've learned how to train a dog based on what yeah. Andrew's shown me, you know. And so now we do stuff where I can give differential commands. You sit, you come here. You know, and I'll give them signals, and they'll follow yeah. uh, the, uh, hand signals. Uh, or I can watch them uh, when we're walking, and just by reading their ears, I know I know what they're thinking before it even hits the front of brain. You know, and it's yeah. get back over here. But yeah, yeah. He's looking at me now. That's awesome. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? That's awesome. Yeah. Mate, I was gonna. I was, it's nice because you mentioned it a bit earlier how um, you introduced some technology and stuff, and I thought, man, that's you were just sort of flowing nicely into to this next piece. I've got a couple more pieces that I'd I'd really like to hear your thoughts on and have have sure. you speak about if that's right, Phil. You spoke about technology, and there's a piece in here that you spoke about integrating drones. Obviously, you've already spoken about the canine stuff. Um, and this illegal mining, or was that was that combined in what we just what you just yeah. spoke about yeah. earlier, or yeah, that yeah that so illegal in, mining in, activity? That, yeah, illegal mining in West Africa was the biggest issue on the gold mine. Um, right. But um, we were just flying blind before, you know. You get security reports that 200 people have already turned up. Well, sorry, yeah. mate, it's too late. <laughs> you know, mm. um, there've been a couple of occasions where two of us went out and confronted 130 and managed to turn them around. And and that, and that, my French isn't that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just through building rapport, smiling, laughing, talking to them, saying, "Look, I'm sorry, but no, you can't come in." Um, yeah. Offering them alternatives, you know, uh, previously mm. mined areas. You guys are welcome to go out there, 
and here's where the hot spots are. But if, every time you come in here, I'm going to bust your nuts. Um, but when they turn up with 500, it's too late. So, yeah. uh, and those numbers just kept getting bigger. And they, the local illegal oh, yeah. miners were manageable because yep. this is their turf and they're accountable to their village chiefs who we talk to every month. And I know mm. good rapport with them uh, and treated them with respect. And a lot of that came back as well. And they would, they would keep their own boys, but it's the drifters, the ones yeah. who are moving across the continent, heading up as far north as they can get to hop into Europe and taking all the cash they can. And they don't care what they do in someone else's backyard. They were the wild cards and the are. dangerous ones. And then back, back yeah, to back yeah. on to, top of that, if they're um, mining gold illegally, they've got to move it through a trafficking system, you know. And this yep. is the old silk routes ran through there. It's a rabbit warren of known uh, oh, trading yeah. routes. And so into those trafficking conduits, it, it's not just gold that's getting dropped in there. It's drugs, ammunition, firearms, um, mm. prostitution, everything is just moving through those. And people getting moved through these conduits uh, up north. And so there's some some pretty nasty characters run those, and, and they're making enough money that they'll 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 utilise a few resources to protect their income. You know, so it's not mm. something you tread lightly around. Um, but we, we were looking at, I, I just want to keep them out of our, at the active mining areas, you know, and how are we going to do this? So we did some clever stuff with uh, dog patrols and pieces like that, but our, our biggest issue was we, we just... It was pretty easy to get overwhelmed very, yep. very quickly. If there's only 16 of us and 200 yeah. of them, that, that, yep. those, are, those are bad maths. So mm. uh, we started using the drones. Um, yeah. And we'd punch it out there. But so, some of the stuff we started doing with the drones was awesome. Like um, we would fly a, uh, a mapping sortie and then just using the software, we could build up a 3D model. <clears throat> And so we'd plan, we're going to do an operation tonight <clears throat> in the northwest. And so I need you guys up here in, in OP. You guys are going to be down there in cutoff. And we'd turn the model around. And so this team could actually see the visual field from their OP down through there. Yeah, you go, right. So this area here is blind to you. And then you turn the model around. And that's why the cutoff team down here, you're looking straight up through that dead ground that these guys can't cover. So you need to let them know. And we'd, what we'd, ideally what we were looking for was a small piece that we could break off the pack. And yep. uh, once once you break a small section off, they would scatter. And we, we had the capability to arrest maybe maximum five people at once. But we wouldn't want yeah. to take on, you know, more than 10 or 15 because yeah. you know, I'll scatter. Uh, and then you got to stop and think about what's their capacity to reel and yeah. come back at us, which, which happened a few times. Um, mm. And so we get all the boys out there using the helicopters, you know, you could you could pick all this stuff then uh, just before last light because the shift changes is one of, one of commercial security's biggest vulnerabilities, you know. Um, poor shift handovers, you know, something that occurred during the day or a warning sign, a red flag from today's shift wasn't passed on to night yep. shift and then, you know, and so uh, we actually, the expat part of the security team just went into overdrive every shift change. So from about 5 p.m. to about 7.30, we were just flat out checking everything, monitoring this, watching those. <laughs> Do our last sort of flight around the um, the mining areas with the drone, and we'd see where the motorcycles were starting to build up. You go, right, they're building up in the northwest. Uh, the plan for tonight's activity in the northwest should be a good one. Um, so now we need police and military support. So 
we tell the military we'll brief you out there because they, they were pretty flexible. The police always wanted to know where you're going to be working. So we tell them we're going to be working in the east. <laughs> we're going to be working in the eastern area and then we turn up, oh, plans change, we're going to the northwest. <laughs> you know, because if we told them too early, they were going yeah. to tell their mates and, they, and, and there'd be no customers there or there'd be a reception party for us, even worse. Uh, but we go in there, we developed a whole lot of different tactics for different scenarios for how to take them down. Some we would wander in amongst the group, um, dressed similarly and behaving like illegal miners, prospecting, until we got right in amongst the group and moved through over to another area. And then we just go loud and take down a handful, cars turn up in the back of the car and gone. And I didn't even know what the heck was all that wow. commotion over there, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Far out, man. Sounds good. Sounds awesome. And just great experiences of what you've spoken about. And I want to – actually, there's, there's a couple other things which have just come to mind now just based on what you've shared. One is – one of the questions that I didn't ask you earlier, did George try to talk you out of leaving the unit back in 97? Or did he, mm, he just – No, no. No? No. It, 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 oh. That was never our thing to tell yeah. each other what to do. Yeah. yeah, sweet. Nah, cool. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. I'm one of – when if George spoke with you, the other part well, so is. So what was funny? They say even in the time where we both served together in the same unit, yeah, like I probably only see him five times a year. Yeah, you know? he yeah, was either off true, saving eh? the world, or I was off doing a course, or we were down in uh, East Sale practicing some crazy new insertion technique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, my last couple of things that I've got here, which I haven't asked you yet, one of them. Well, they're both they're both pretty personal and stuff, but in, in here, and so just interested to hear your thoughts. One, the first one here, probably the lesser of the two personal ones, which I want to ask you, um, is what challenges, if any, for you, Phil, did you struggle with or come across or find when you transitioned out of the Special Air Service Regiment? Maybe you didn't, but maybe you did. And if you did, um, how how did you overcome those? Like what what? You know, the like for uh, to, just to try to paint a picture or give some context, the connections with uh, I call them my brothers um, from from the unit as was a real massive big gap left here for me um, in here as well, uh, and so that, that was one that I'll touch on. But this here, this question is for you: What challenges, if any, did you struggle with during your transition out of the unit, and and how have you overcome those? And if you didn't have any, then that's cool as well. I'd be interested to know why. No, I, I <laughs> why think yeah, yeah. Well, so and I think here's the why first. Uh, I, I yeah. didn't, I didn't, I hung on to uh, probably out of everyone. I probably kept in touch with what about five five blokes that I served yep. with. That's it. Uh, yeah. And that's not because I wasn't really tight with people. I think, I, I think, and I'm just making this up, but uh, it's the best, most plausible uh, thing I can think of. Because I had such a, uh, a, uh, a transient youth, you know, report, yeah, just okay. ripped out of here, move over there, and you just yeah. stop one life and start another one. I'd been doing mm. that as a teenager or for, for most of my uh, my young life. And so it was very yeah. easy for me to just park that part and start another chapter, you know, gotcha. and here we mm. go again. So for me personally, I feel like I've had five separate lives, you know. Mm. Uh, Sounds and, like and, it. And they're, <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're all segmented. They are. There's nothing in between yeah. them. There's, there's very little overlap between them. So yeah. um, 
I, I think that's, wow. that's that bit didn't impact me. But one of, one of the cool. biggest issues that, uh, and I still struggle today with this, is um, when you when you've operated at a certain level, mm. when you fine tune your own drills and preparation um, and focus and integrity to a certain level, it's incredibly uh, disappointing. And I find myself continuously disappointed by other people's failure to do the same thing, but they haven't had the same mm. life experience as me. And so one mm. of the things my mum told me that um, I'm, 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 I'm listening to this guidance as I say it, because <laughs> I'm <laughs> on board even today. But she said that, um, you know, people can only disappoint you as much as you let them. I thought, what does that mm. mean? That's rubbish. Yeah. But she's right, because yeah. we set our own expectations. You know, I set the expectations that I put on somebody else. And if they fall short of that, they fell short of a standard that I set. So I set the wrong standard. You know, I need to go back and recalibrate my expectations so they're a bit more realistic. Here's a classic example that, uh, plays, that, that demonstrates that. We were... Um, we made a shift uh, working in uh, Mali uh, to we, – we, we rolled into – I pulled together a team of, of really good operators. We had some problems in some other areas, and so we handpicked a group of guys to go out into the mine. Now, this was the one where we actually integrated – we looked like miners, but that takes smarter than the average bear with a slightly larger pair of kahunas as well. <laughs> ugly real fast. And so these guys had to be pretty good. Um but I handpicked these guys, we'd briefed them, uh, we'd rehearsed it uh, in the open, uh, you know, just walk through drills so people could visualise what was expected. Yeah. Uh, and I figured these guys will be okay. Their preparation, like I've got fresh batteries in my torch. I've got a spare battery in my pocket. I've got a water bottle that's full right to the top and isn't going to yeah. make any noise, you know. <laughs> Anything in my pocket, there's nothing in my pockets that's going to make any noise. So. Yeah. I just assumed that they would be operating at the same level. Mm. We had um, one of the best guys we ever hired. I think he's still over there, uh, Tommy Johnson, uh, ex-RSM of the UK Army. Um, absolute legend of a guy. He, he's he's really someone worth following up. But, you know, have a look oh. at this guy as a character. Um, yeah. Scottish, um, terrible at speaking French. Uh, and sounds like a parrot when you try and teach him Australian things, but fantastic guy. But because of his background, and, and as an RSM, particularly at, at that level, first thing he did was he got the guys, right, you line up here, right, now jump up and down. What's that making noise? You know, take out your water bottles, shake it. Why is your water bottle making noise? Get over there and fill it. And he treated them like an RSM. I looked at that and I thought, geez, well done, Tommy. I, I, that we could have gone tits up out there. Um, yeah. You know, things could have gone wrong because I just assumed all yep. the boys would prepare to the same level that I had. Because yeah. I thought, oh, I'm not working with the rank and file here. This is the tier one group. They yep. weren't tier one. Mm. They were tier 1.5, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Tommy, Tommy knew it. Uh, and so he, he just came He just knew straight away, okay, I know what's needed here. We're going to do a DP1 check. <laughs> before oh, yeah. And so it's just learning little lessons and little reminders like that all the way through. I, I do set high standards of myself. I'm mm. constantly frustrated uh, by the old, um, you know, people don't know what they don't know. Trying yeah. to, you know, the, the old, um, uh, what's it called, Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, people think they know what security is about, but if you've yeah. only ever done security in Australia and you haven't actually gone overseas and looked at what life 
can be like if it's not as comfortable and well as there isn't such good law enforcement. Um, yeah. Things can go pear-shaped pretty quickly. So the bulk of the time I've spent operating security in Australia, I find myself as a salesman <laughs> trying yeah. to educate the bosses, you know, uh, walk them through the process, uh, establish with them that, look, I am using uh, ISO 31000 and Handbook 167 as an established methodology to make a uh, uh, an objective assessment. Here's the risk assessment. You know, these are the mitigations. This is the residual risk. And they go, no, I, I, I don't agree with that. You go, okay, fine. Um, but which part don't you agree with? Well, that, well, that's too high. All right, okay, let's go back and have a look at what are their capabilities, what's their intent, what opportunities mm. they're given, how we rank those, and you tell me which one of these is wrong. And they can't. And so yeah. I've had to pull together rock-solid risk assessments that can't be second-guessed or watered down um, mm. frequently. Uh, this is a, another uh, area where I've struggled. A lot of people will bundle security in with uh, health, safety, and environmental guys. Oh, it's all risk yeah. management, right? Well, no, it's not, mate, because yeah. uh, safety, health, and environmental is underpinned by the assumption of compliance. You know, No mm. one wants to get hurt. No one wants to get sick. No one wants to make a mess. And when you explain, hey, mate, that's wrong. Here's the procedure. Let's try and change it. Everyone says, thank you. Uh, you help stop me from doing something wrong and runs with it. Security risk management's underpinned by the, the knowledge that we have a thinking adversary actively trying yeah. to defeat. You know, and, and some people say, oh, yeah, but you can have uh, a deliberate environmental thing. You go, well, okay, that's called sabotage, and that's actually a security incident. You know, yeah, yeah. With, with, <laughs> it falls under the security, impact, yeah. yeah. And it falls straight back under this. And that's where our risk assessment process has to look at capability, intent, and opportunity to determine mm. the likelihood factor, not just – well, no, I don't, I've never heard of that happening. It's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I don't spend any money doing it, you know. Um, so, and for those reasons, you run security in Australia, and I'm, I'm out there, advertising, marketing, explaining uh, to the, you know, the unconvertible, preaching to the unconvertible. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Ideas it's and concepts right. that they, they, they haven't considered, they weren't budgeted for, and they're just not going to happen. So you're mm. thinking up workaround solutions, as opposed to working in developing countries where now I give a security brief, everyone's leaning forward, listening, mm. asking questions and taking notes as opposed to yawning, looking out the window and checking their watch. Yeah, right? checking their watch, um, yeah. Yeah, you live in a safe country for too long, you feel safe. Of course. It's yeah. If you've never Man. seen it happen before uh, and then you're going to have an opinion of what you think security is about and you're not going to yeah. listen to your SMEs. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's probably the biggest piece I've struggled with uh, yeah, that's why I keep getting drawn back to, you know, those those jobs where you, every now and then you think, man, did we bite off too much on this one? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, keep, keeping you sharp. Started off with a good plan, you think, oh boy, this one might come unstuck real fast. <laughs> man, and so how's that? Those challenges, those struggles, because I've loved listening to those and I love the advice that you shared that your mum gave. People can only disappoint you as much as you let them. Man, I love that. I just wrote that down. Yeah. Um, great advice. How have you, what's been the shift in you to try to help you overcome that? Has it been largely, do you put that down to, okay, benefit of the doubt or maybe it's they, okay, they haven't had the same level of training as me or how how yeah, have you navigated you know, your way through it's, it's, So for a lot of things, I'll, I'll just have to stop. I have to stop, step back, 
and taking a you know when you get tunnel like vision that. as you're charging through something, you yep. you start to make assumptions. Um, for for me, I have to physically stop myself, step back, uh, look at it, and think. What would Pete Townsend do in this situation? Yeah. <laughs> and Pete then Townsend, get yeah. inside their heads, you know, and, and and then you break it down into okay, how does this look through their eyes? What are they looking for? You know, um, does he does this guard really want to be here, taking on these illegal miners, or is he just looking for some overtime? <laughs> would he be better suited <laughs> you know, doing a second shift over at the gold room, uh, or are we going to bring him out on this op? You know, gotcha. Uh, yeah. Nice. Awesome, man. Oh, great insights. I love that. I, um, I've scribbled down a couple of pages worth of notes here just listening to you on this so far. Yeah, but I've got probably one more question that I sure. that I want to ask you about. Um, and feel free if it's okay uh, and if you want to speak about it. But I noticed that you mentioned um, a couple of marriages and stuff there. And so relationships yep. in terms of that. Obviously, one you alluded to was whilst you were still in the unit, in the Australian Regiment, and for us, um, what we've noticed, that we've, we've had the privilege of uh, interviewing Harry Moffat's wife. Uh, she's the second yeah. spouse that's come on, which is great. Yep. Um, she was awesome, actually. She was amazing yeah. to go on there, but it's been great to get the spouse's perspective. And I was just wondering, from, from your side, if you were comfortable enough in sharing, what, what advice um, or guidance would you give and can you are you able to put it down to was it due to your time serving in such a high risk fast paced environment that added stress to the relationship of of the marriage and or what advice would you give to to people going into those sorts of units or into even to the types of environments that you work in now because it is fast paced it is quite stressful um, and you've yep. got a lot of a lot of moving parts happening in there which can preoccupy people like you and I. Our minds in a lot of different ways can become very focused on on things and that can cause, I guess, disconnection in other areas. And I know for me, with my wife and I being on the brink of separation and stuff uh, at least a couple of times in our marriage together, um, I'm glad that we haven't. But I know that there's still this sort of stuff that's present there for people that are operating in these units. And I guess yeah. to... With your advice, your experience, what what sort of things have you either maybe learnt in self-reflection? Because that's always a good tool as well to be able to pass on to the next generation to be able to learn from that. And it's obvious that you're somebody that likes to share their experiences to try to help the next lot of people coming through. Is there anything that you would share or speak about in relation to the, the relationships that you've had? Or yes, yeah, so, so I think the first thing, uh, and uh, and I sort of I throw this around like it's a joke, but it's it, it's actually true that. Um, Time spent in the rehearsals is seldom wasted. <laughs> you know, mm, yeah, um, yeah. I've been described as a uh, previously enjoyed companion <laughs> that's had most mm. of his bad habits knocked out. Um, I know that um, the first relationship was hasty. Uh, she was yeah. pregnant, do the right thing. Um, in retrospect, probably wasn't the right thing. Uh, it didn't work out. It, it didn't survive mm. seven years. But uh, on a positive note, you know, got some, got a couple put a couple of uh, pretty awesome little kids into the world, you know, and, mm. and inherited uh, three others. So I'm happy to call them all my own. So that was yeah. never going to work long term. Uh, what happened with with us uh, at that point, so we, we started out on the same page as very similar people, but then um, something clicked in my mind. I made a decision. I'm going to join the regiment. Um, I quit yeah. smoking. I stopped drinking. Uh, I started training. 
and I started reading and I started studying and I started talking to people. You know, I, I went off and did uh, my private pilot license examinations, stuff like that. Uh, flight physics, aerodynamics, you know, and all of that, and meteorology squared away to advance my... And so I just went on this burner of self-improvement mm. because the regiment was my focus and this was the pathway to get there. She yep. didn't. I mm. quit smoking, she started smoking. You know, we just started oh, to drift wow. apart. And we yeah. just continued to drift and drift and drift until it got to the point where we said, you know what, enough's enough. Um, mm. And so we called it quits. So that, that one was yep. okay. Um we're still good friends today. Um, awesome. I was going to ask, Ease. Yeah, yeah there, there, were, uh, there were some times where it wasn't always that way. <laughs> yeah. Know? And there were some times where I was, I was a bit of a prick and disrespectful and, 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 and all sorts of things. But I think we're in a good place today, so that, that's good. Um, yeah, that is good. Marriage number two was quite different. Uh, it was someone I fell head over heels with, uh, chased it to the end of the world. Uh, we got mm-hmm. together. But the expectations were all wrong. You know, for where she was right. in her life and what I wanted to do, I had a high risk appetite. She had zero mm. risk appetite. You know, this mm. was stuff from just being a bit too hasty, um, maybe too quick on the rebound. I don't, I don't know. That's, that, that's an injustice to a relationship to say something like that on its own. But um, we'll also um, good result. Two beautiful kids <laughs> brought mm. into the world. Um, so no regrets here. When marriage number two went belly up quite confronting because when mm. your first one goes to pieces that's easy it was her bitch <laughs> <You're playing laughs> when, when the second one goes belly up that's a bit more confronting you know, so what do mm. they both have in common maybe yeah. I am a prick <laughs> you know mm. and so at that point there was probably the first uh, time for me to really start to internally reflect uh, and accept accountability and for the first time in my life, I started to project outwards and try and look back in. What, what do I look from? What do I look like from that side? From that you side. Know, I always see, you know, we've all got blind spots, but uh, I know how I feel about yeah. me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but yeah. How do, how do other people perceive me? Am I, am I too much? Do I go too hard? Do I swear too much? You know? Do mm. I. Um, what, what, are, what are their impressions of me? And not because I want to change myself to make them like me or anything I, I just want to have a bit of I want to feel more grounded and have a better understanding of the, the impact of my words uh, my behaviour um, because for me what might be a perfectly logical decision could leave someone else in complete turmoil you know and so um, two marriages ago I learnt that um, logic will never defeat emotion <laughs> never <laughs> Uh, and I've actually applied that commercially as well. We, we've had some incidents where um, there've been uh, shutdowns, uh, there've been shots fired, vehicles burnt, uh, riots, and angry people threatening us. And then the workforce won't go back out there. And we've given them all the logical explanations for why it's safe to go. It's a logical explanation that doesn't uh, satisfy their emotional uh, cry yeah. for help. You know, so we've looked yep. at it, gone back and reassessed this, and thought, this is this is an emotional pitch this is an emotional objection that they have so we need to give them something that that addresses that you know it, it, it's probably part of what's wrong with most of the covid messaging you're getting from the government at the mm, moment too true. Uh, yeah, they yeah. Can just keep throwing logic at, at what is essentially uh what are essentially emotional emotional objections yeah, yeah and they're not getting addressed so yeah. i started to take on board a lot of that stuff um then 
finally, when I put my hands up in the air and said, right, that's it, I've had it, um, never getting married again. Well, never say never, mate. Yeah. <laughs> some some matchmaking friends set me up with someone. Um, we had dinner <laughs> together and she looked at me and thought, nah. Uh, and I looked at her and thought, oh, yeah, she, she's nice, but uh, nah. And they let it run. Twelve months later, they tried again and bang. Timing was right. We're in the right place. Yeah. And we've, we've been together ever since. Um, oh, ten days after that meeting, beautiful. I moved in with her. Um, well, wow. and um, 18 months after that, we got married. Um, and I think the key things that have made this relationship work differently to the others were: yeah. I'm not as much of a prick. I'm still a bit of a prick, but I'm not as mm. much. I, I'm a lot more uh, internally reflective. Uh, I, you know, we will we'll get angry and we'll go to opposite ends of the house. Uh, and there, but yeah. but now instead of sulking for days, I'll calm down. And go back and say, oh, look, yeah, look, no, you're right. I'm sorry about that. But, yeah, you're pretty, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't do that before. Yeah, there's no mm. way I could do that before. Um, I learned a lot from her uh, for where, where Kitty works. Uh, we used to work uh, in the apparel industry about people management and how you yeah. can catch more flies with honey. You don't have to go hard at a problem to get a yeah, result. Yeah. You know, there, there are some softer approaches that might – um, and I, I keep relearning that lesson because I am a hard charger left to my own devices I'm mm. going to stop and recalibrate myself and come back easier the second time around and I think the other key thing is that um, I was working FIFO when we met yeah right I was in and out away and gone and back and gone and back and so that, that's always been part of our picture it's not a, a change yeah. or something that she had to adapt to adjust uh, to yeah and she, yeah, yeah. And, and she's never tried to change me or pressure me or whatever it's just if that's what you want to do go for it uh, I'd prefer you do mm-hmm. this but I understand it's your decision and I respect it oh damn it okay <laughs> I'm going <gonna, laughs> to do it your way <laughs> yeah. uh, there's the honey <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and uh, so I, I think that's that's gone a long way mm-hmm. uh, to, and they we, we actually operate really well um, when we're together and then having some time apart, you know. So mm. the contract I've just signed is for a six and six and six rotation. Yep. So I actually like being away for six weeks to just go off and charge around and save the world and then come home to <laughs> her and tell her all my stories uh, <laughs> and then fix up things around the house. Uh, and then she's like, okay, get out, leave us alone. I want to go back to my... <laughs> My routine, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. I've been described as that guy who comes into the lounge room, changes the channel, and leaves again. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> leave it running. Yeah, Jink. yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah but uh, as long as I don't change the channel, uh, but a lot more internal reflection. Uh, mm, yeah, love that. And and, and and you know, just learning. I've learned how to do it with other communities and cultures to show them respect. Yeah. Yep. Um, but it took me a while to catch up to learn to, to, to apply that to my own family, mm. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and catch up. Because it, it's easy to take them for granted. You know, but yeah. the truth is you can you can get another job, mate. Mm. <laughs> you can't yeah, get yeah. another family, you know. Um, so where, where's yeah, your priorities? True. Where should they sit? Yeah. Man, beautiful stuff, Phil. I really – Really enjoy those, and thank you for being so raw and open and honest about those uh, very personal and private situations for you. 
but I know that they're going to be helpful because we've had people already talk about how helpful it's been to hear about it's not just all, you know, flashbangs and things smoke here and all this sort of stuff and all the exciting stuff happening, but you're dealing with people. I love how you spoke about these logical responses to an emotional objection and yeah. we're human beings at the end of the day, yet you've you've lived, like you said, five lives, probably more than five separate lives, and they're all segmented. But, man, the lessons yeah, contained… Yeah, watch out when I get to nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I reckon. <laughs> and the lessons, I just think the lessons contained within what you've been sharing, the relationships and the friendships that you've been able to build, the mindset. And, yeah, some people might say, oh, well, that's because you were so transient when you was young. Um, and that's what has made it easier. Like that is really interesting for me because um, I know that there may be some other people as well. And I'm sure there are other people that have been able to segment that part of their life, you know, that, that have gone, okay, I'm out of the unit now. So this is what I'm doing now. And that's yeah. great to hear. The reason that I feel it's important to get, or that Brian and I, a co-founder, felt that it's important to get people like you and all these different experiences is because everybody's different and it's going to resonate with people so that I don't want people thinking, Oh, I'm weird because I haven't struggled with transition. Like, no hats off to you, man. That's awesome <laughs> that you've been able to do that. Yeah. Um, and these may be some of the reasons why, or actually, yeah, you've had a transient upbringing for a large part of the younger portion of your life. And it's helped as you reflect it's it's potentially helped in terms of what you've been able to do. The, um, again, the variety in work, this, the cleaning business, the OAM stuff into the mining, into the security, um, and all of this sort of thing, all, all of this sort of stuff is just fantastic. Sorry, go. We didn't even touch on, we didn't something? even touch on, uh, maritime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, we've got, well, we can't oh, yeah, we'll yeah, do no, another podcast yeah. anyway, but, um, okay. if you're okay, I'd, I'd love, that's right. Yeah. Maritime. Cause you said there was a whole bunch of, I think your comments and there was, there was a whole bunch of maritime stuff that happens. Stacks of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so Go, short, talk about it. Um, uh, really cool guy. Uh, this will be a, this will be a short snippet part one and then we'll come back and do it again. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Stamper Orwin, uh, ran a company called Drum Cusack. Um, basically, uh, they are to the UK or an SBS based what uh, OAM is to Australia and the uh, okay. SASR. It's like a, a group yep. of old boys uh, focused primarily being SBS and uh, Royal Marine Commandos, uh, but based in Hereford. Yep. Go, go, go figure, not Paul. Um, yeah, right. But um, they had a whole lot of really good gigs. And there, there, so there was a company, Drum Cusack Asia. Uh, we just moved to Singapore. And uh, they contacted me and said, look, can you do a uh, maritime escort for a super yacht? No. Can you, uh, mate, we need someone to do this. No, not interested. <laughs> and then finally it was like, mate, I really need somebody. This is how much it's going to pay. And I went, yep. <laughs> you can pay that much money for me to go on a super yacht? Absolutely. Is the boss on board? No, it's just the transit. Oh, even better, you know. Uh, I can walk around in my undies. Uh, I don't even need to behave myself or anything like that. So got on board this fantastic yacht, took uh, those, you know, the LRAD, the long-range acoustic device. Uh, Far out. Sonic weapon, you know, 100 and, 154 decibels in a pencil beam with a 7 wow. million candle power Maxa beam spotlight on it. Bloody hell. Uh, did this transit, got the yacht up there safely, got off. Beautiful people got on, and away they went. So did that job, came back, and uh, uh, Jeremy was in the office. And it turns out I, I didn't know Jeremy directly, and I'd never worked with the SBS guys before, but we had yep. a number of mutual friends. 
And so we were talking about stuff, and he said, so tell me, Phil, and he's got his whole head shed there. They're about to have a big meeting. Um, he says, what do you think of our little company? I said, Jeremy, do you, do you want a popular response that will make you feel good, or do you want to hear the truth? And he went, ooh, sounds like you got something to say. I said, yeah, right. man, have I ever? And so I just rolled them through a whole series of things that I thought they were doing wrong. <laughs> and, yep. and, uh, and he was he was gobsmacked. He's like, no one's ever told me this stuff before, you know. It was little things like um, the, um, the number of your business. Like if you're working in Asia, uh, four. Four is a bad, bad, bad number. That's the unlucky number, you know. If you go and put a one in front of the four, it's like certain certainty that something bad is going to happen, you know, whereas eight is the lucky number. Um, so if, if, you know, if you're in uh, Singapore, there's no 13th floor, there's no 14th floor. You know, mm. You've got 12, 12A, 12B, 15, you know, because <laughs> those are unlucky. You're not going to get any tenants on that. Your business address is number 14. Dude, what do you, what do you think? You know, a handful of expats, can you not get the last word? Um, he said, can you write this stuff down and send it to me? So I wrote him five pages, flicked it through. Wow. He, there was an awkward silence for about a month, and then he rang me back and said, do you want a job? <laughs> uh, as an ops manager for Drum Cusack Asia. I said, yeah, absolutely. So first thing, we moved offices. Uh, so that was good. Uh, and then we ramped up. And we introduced, they were already underway, uh, a whole lot of developmental things, and, and I managed to plug in and run with and and, yep. and, and, and develop a couple more. But... We did some real clever stuff. We started, we got hold of uh, some open source uh, information for all the shipping that came through uh, the straits, where they were, where they were going next, what they were carrying, and we identified all of those that were potentially high-risk transits. Then we yep. made the approach to them and said, we can put a bunch of tough guys on board to protect your vessel. We could uh, train your crew and provide you the materials to protect your vessel. Or, you know, and various you know, stages yeah. all the way through. We gave like a five different tier response. You can get the big kahuna package all the way yeah. down through to the no frills one. Uh, yeah. And we'll support you anywhere you need to be. Um, it actually turned out we made more money uh, selling razor wire. We were buying this I mean, as fast as we could get it in from China, and you're buying it was going volume. Yeah. And we were getting it out there and on ships, and uh, wow. we ran uh, basic training packages for them. Um, Kuwaiti oil tankers, um, their flagship, uh, Al Salhia, uh, 300,000 gross tons, uh, nine meter freeboard. She would be doing 19 <laughs> knots. They wanted oh, to yeah. stop going down around the Cape, and they wanted to go through the Suez, which meant Gulf of Aden. But they yeah. weren't they weren't sure they could do that. So I, I ended up on board her. And that was a tough one too. This is where the people skills came in, Andy. Um, mm. the their security plan, ship security plan, they would not disclose. I couldn't pick it up and read it. So I couldn't write a high risk transit procedure that dovetailed with them. So I I wrote a generic procedure and then I sat down with the ship security officer. And we played 20 questions. What about this? No. What about this? No. What about this? Yep, that will work. Okay. <laughs> Option C. And we, we had to do it all that way, you know. But we came Far up with some out. amazing stuff. Like um, their engine room was indefensible. You could not stop people from gaining unauthorized. They had 23 access points, you know, on that oh, ship. Oh, And, and wow. most of them were safety exits. You can't lock them yep. off. You yep. can't even put an additional locking measure on them. Uh, it's a massive safety risk. So how are we going to keep people out of your engine room? Well, the answer was simple. 
ship's horn. Ship's horn, 160 decibels in a confined space. <laughs> we're not going to keep them out, but we're going to encourage yeah. them to get the hell out if they ever get in. And so uh, cameras and this, and then a procedure with um, short, you know, one second on, one second off, two seconds on, two seconds. And the message is this is getting longer and it's going to hurt more uh, the yeah. less time you scramble on your hands and knees through your own feces back to the <laughs> entry point <laughs> that you got in there on, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, check check that box. Um, wow. We looked at stuff for, you know, the old hoses over the side and the razor yep. wire. We came up with some innovative ways to be able to um, pack that up and flat fold it for bunkering and then bounce it back out and using steel yeah, wire ropes right. in between. And we, we just fine-tuned the process where everyone else was twitching the stuff on, taking four hours, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. We could flat pack one whole side of the ship within 10 minutes with a crew of five blokes. Um, just, oh, just, right. just through clever design. The hoses, um, you know, the spray going over the side, it's not going to stop somebody, but if, if she's making 19 knots away into an 11-knot headwind, it means any coxswain coming alongside has got 30 knots of spray in their face. So that mm. is a bit of a deterrent. You can't manoeuvre <laughs> 300,000 tonnes. She's you, you put in uh, <laughs> a change on the helm, <laughs> And then you wait five minutes, and then the, the bow slowly comes across, you know, one degree per minute for the next 15 minutes. It's unreal. So there's no zigzag in one of those suckers. So we thought, well, what are we going to do to stop and come alongside? And uh, what we came up with was fantastic. Um, two, two problems to solve each other, right? So you yep. go straight to the top of the green, and you probably give her a nudge into, into the yellow if you're getting chased. Uh, engineers don't like that the engine starts to overheat and they start to have problems um, what we worked out was through some uh, and it wasn't didn't take a lot of work to, to replumb this but by pushing uh, pushing the fire water through the heat exchanger we got more cooling on the engine and we got 72 wow. degrees at the nozzle you know so <laughs> now I've got blistering hot scalding water. water coming yeah. over the side um, <laughs> we tested some hoses to destruction and we found, okay, I, I can run that hot water through them for a minute, and then i got to go flick it back to cold for a minute, yeah. and we could just alternate. Or we could alternate sides of the ship, uh, whatever it took. Yeah, okay. Um, so so that, was, that was really good. We learned a lot doing that. Uh, and those guys were really open to that. And, and a million and other one sneaky little tricks for how to yeah, yeah. Um, secure your infrastructure. And, and, and all of that stuff came from being that guy with the painter pole in the water, and the caving ladder and the carabiners <laughs> trying to hook it on and going, going up, you know, coming along, doing ship under, ship alongside, ship underway, yeah. having done that stuff. And you, I know what this is like from the other side, so let's mess it up from this side. Um, yeah, So yeah. That they were good. And then because yeah. um, I got the gift of the gap, uh, I, I picked up a lot of super yacht transits uh, and things like that. Uh, yeah, well, the beautiful people doing those, those jobs were awesome. Some of them, <laughs> I look back on the thing, I would have actually paid money to have gone on that cruise. You know, <laughs> they were just awesome trips. But um, Jeremy uh, gave me a hard time and laughed at me because Drum Cusack Asia was actually a write-off for the UK branch. Right. Okay. It, it was a tax write-off. Uh, it was losing money, and they. Or I turned it to profit. <laughs> so oh, now, wow. he, did, he didn't get his tax uh, credits, and we yeah. had this big meeting. And he said, "Right, you got to get the profits above this level here before we uh, 
otherwise I'm losing money. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So I wasn't expecting that to happen. The boss puts the brakes on. You're doing too too much of a good job. Mm. Uh, a great bunch of guys to work for. Absolutely awesome. Oh, and, a lot of, and, and, you know, the good thing about that stuff is it's just all innovation. You'd be looking at something and you go, that's just so crazy it might work. Let's let's chuck a ship's horn in a confined space. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. – um, how, how did the testing – who were the guinea pigs to test that on? Um, we, we got one volunteer, one of the um, <laughs> Filipino crew. Uh, he stuck yellow squishies in yeah. his ears. He put the earmuffs on. Then he wrapped uh, the stuff around and around his head. Um, I briefed him. Uh, we're going to crack this door. You're going to go in there. Uh, the horn's going to come on for one second, off for one, and we talked, you know, all the way up through. I said, if, if it gets painful uh, and you want us to stop, just hold your hands in the air and yeah. we'll stop immediately. Um, we're like, okay, you ready? Ready. So he stepped in. We're all wearing yellow squishies and over, over ears. Yeah. He stepped into the confined space. This amazing noise just came ripping out of that hole, and we could, we're standing outside, and I can you feel, feel it, it going through oh, my body my uh, to the point where I, I was, you know, almost hands up, feeling dizzy. Yeah. I've looked up at him. His hands have gone in the air as he's fallen, <laughs> uh, fallen down and wet himself. Oh uh, wow! We've got on the radio. Stop! 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 Reached in, grabbed this bloke, pulled him out. Um, <laughs> Got tuned up by a doctor because afterwards, because he said it didn't matter what you stuck in his ears, the hearing potential for hearing damage was coming through the bones in his head. You know, oh, there was that much noise energy in there. Um, he said if it was any longer than one second, that guy could have had permanent hearing damage. Hearing, yeah. Uh, tick the box. That one works. <laughs> Thanks, demo. Uh, next. Thanks, demo. Yeah. Did he <laughs> yeah. did he get a bonus or anything? <laughs> I don't know. No, the wow. yeah, they were pretty yeah. harsh on their crews. Those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Ah, right. But great, great tool. Great, um, great use of the resources that you had, and, a, and an excellent deterrent by the sounds of things. I was just imagining, and you just painted a, a a perfect picture of what I imagined it probably would have been like. Especially if you're if you're feeling that vibration and your body's shaking from outside that space. Yeah, I could yeah, only feel exactly. for the poor fella, the, the demo yeah. that was in there. Man, that's so, oh, yeah, like so many, so much more. I can tell that there's so much more, and that's fine um, with us if that's okay with you because we'd love to get you back on again. I just want to, you know, Phil, I just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge you, brother, and thank you not only for your willingness to come on but for your time, for the way in which you've shared your knowledge and experiences um, so openly and willingly with myself and uh, that in turn is going to transfer to our audience that we're lucky enough to have that take the time appreciate the the a lot of the messages um not not even hidden but the messages that are contained within them in terms of that self-reflection piece i really love that i love the comments from your mum people can only disappoint you as much as you let them these things about having that courage and that ability to be able to look back and um you know reflect on and progress from where you were before in terms of whether that was not being able to communicate before and and staying in silence and then coming back in terms of the relationships and being able to do that. Um, Your transition journey and all the vast experiences that you have, the way that you go about communicating, I can see why the relationships must, must build. And I don't know if it's always the case, but 
I could sit here and continue listening to you. You've had me leaning in pretty much since we started and had you speaking, and it's been great to hear you speak, brother. Um, really appreciate it. Enjoy the sense of humor that you have as well. It, it takes me back to times in the yeah. unit with people with very similar senses of humor and just makes me laugh, makes me happy. And so yeah. really pleased to hear and see you doing doing well. What is it, my last question, what is it that you are doing right now? Like what's your role or what's what business are you doing? What's your current job and role? I've just transitioned from uh, an ExxonMobil job to yep. uh, doing this, the same job with them uh, outside the wire with the landowner company. So I'll, I'll be working with a Papua New Guinean uh, landowner company yeah. Um, as their community affairs and security manager for yeah. uh, an expansion project uh, in in a, in a particularly challenging part of the world. Uh, some real <laughs> yeah. characters up there, some unique challenges. Uh, I've got some time on the ground and a good network. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I've, mate, I've, I love getting into that place because you, you can see what they need. You can he- I can hear what you want. I can see what you need and then just trying to manage a balance between what, what what can you reasonably expect and how can we share that wide instead of just giving it to a handful of people. So that's on a six and six yeah. roster. Um, yep. Which, yeah, it, it, I, I, I quite like go hard, work hard, yeah. go home and then just have some time off. You know, and then I can pursue Beautiful. my other passions. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, man. So good to hear. And thanks for sharing that as well. Brother, we um, wish you, so on behalf of Brian and I, wish you and your family uh, a safe and prosperous new year as well. We look forward to connecting with you again um, going forward because there's certainly a lot more to tell. There's been a lot more than five lives uh, lived in here and the story that I can tell and hear from so far, brother. So really appreciate you, man, and hope you and your family have a fantastic new year. Stay safe. And uh, we'll connect again soon. So, as always, we sign off on these podcasts of Who Dares Wins. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it, bro.